the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. All right, it's a Monday. We get a new week going. And, of course, today, big day, the president met with the uh, premier over a president of uh, Russia, Vladimir Putin. And uh, people are having conniption fits over the press conference afterwards. He met with Putin for 130 minutes. I was just watching Shepard Smith, and he's saying, that 130 minutes, we may never know what was discussed there. Well, what makes you think you're supposed to know what's being discussed there? And I, Russ, correct me if I'm wrong here. You know, they're talking about maybe, uh, or they have, depending on who you talk to, the Russians have uh, tried to sway our elections. Have we ever tried to sway any other country's elections? Are are our hands clean on all of this? Our hands are not clean. No, they're totally dirty. I, the latest that we've done is when Obama tried to make sure Netanyahu didn't get elected the last time that he ran. So let's let's call. This is the pot calling the kettle black, as far as I'm concerned. Everybody say. Well, Russia doing this in our elections. Well, we're doing stuff in other people's elections. But the CIA does. And they have for a long, long time. And why is everybody walking around with this stunned look on their face? I don't get it at all. Evidently, you are not following uh, or weren't following anything about Chile or any place like that uh, in the past. All right, with that in mind, I've got for you the uh, press conference. Let's get that underway. Here is the president, uh, of course, President Trump, and then Putin uh, after they met for 130 minutes. President, ladies and gentlemen, negotiations with the president of the United States, Donald Trump, uh, took place in a frank and businesslike atmosphere. I think we can call it a success and a very fruitful round of negotiations. We carefully analyzed the current status, the present and the future of the Russia-United States relationship, key issues of the global agenda. It's quite clear to everyone that the bilateral relationship are going through a complicated stage, and yet those impediments, the current tension, the tense atmosphere, essentially have no solid reason behind it. The Cold War is a thing of past. The era of acute ideological confrontation of the two countries is a thing of a remote past, is a vestige of the past. The situation in the world changed dramatically. Today, both Russia and the United States face a whole new set of challenges. Those include a dangerous maladjustment of mechanisms for maintaining international security and stability, regional crises, the creeping threats of terrorism and transnational crime. It's the snowballing 
problems in the economy, environmental risks and other sets of challenges. We can only cope with these challenges if we join the ranks and work together. Hopefully we will reach this understanding with our American partners. Today's negotiations reflected our joint wish, our joint wish with President Trump to redress this negative situation in the bilateral relationship. Outline the first steps for improving this relationship to restore the acceptable level of trust and going back to the previous uh, level of interaction on all mutual interest issues. As major nuclear powers, we bear special responsibility for maintaining international security. Adamantly vital, and we mentioned this during the negotiations, it's crucial that we fine-tune the dialogue on strategic stability and global security and non-proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. We submitted our American colleagues a note with a number of specific suggestions. We believe it necessary to work together further on to interact on the disarmament agenda, military and technical cooperation. This includes the extension of the strategic offensive arms limitation treaty. It's a dangerous situation with the global American anti-missile defense system. It's the implementation issues with the INF treaty. And, of course, the agenda of non-placement of weapons in space. We favor the continued cooperation in counterterrorism and maintaining cybersecurity. And I'd like to point out specifically that our special services are cooperating quite successfully together. The most recent example is their operational cooperation uh, within the recently concluded World Football Cup. In general, the contacts among the special services should be put to a system-wide basis, should be a, uh, brought to a systemic framework. I recall, I remind, reminded President Trump about the suggestion to re-establish the working group on anti-terrorism. We also mentioned a plethora of regional crises, it's not always um, that our postures dovetail exactly, and yet uh, the overlapping and mutual interests abound. We have to look for points of contact and interact closer in a variety of inter international fora. Clearly, we mentioned the regional crisis, for instance, Syria. As far as Syria is concerned, the task of establishing peace and reconciliation in this country could be the first showcase example of the successful joint work. Russia and the United States apparently can act proactively and take assumed leadership in this issue and organize the interaction to overcome humanitarian crisis and help Syrian refugees to go back to their homes. In order to, to accomplish this level of successful cooperation in Syria, we have all the required components. Let me remind you that both Russian and American military have acquired a useful experience of coordination of their action, established the operational channels of communication, which permitted to avoid dangerous incidents and unintentional collisions in the air and in the ground. Also, uh, crushing terrorists in the southwest of Syria, the uh, south of Syria, should be brought 
to the full compliance with the Treaty of 1974 about the separation of forces, about separation of forces of Israel and Syria. This will bring peace to Golan Heights and bring more peaceful relationship between Syria and Israel and also to provide security of the state of Israel. Mr. President paid special attention to the issue during today's negotiations and I would like to confirm that Russia is interested in this development and this will act accordingly. Thus far, we will make a step toward creating a lasting peace in compliance with the respective resolutions of uh, Security Council, for instance, the Resolution 338, we are glad that the Korean Peninsula issue is starting to resolve. To a great extent, it was possible thanks to the personal engagement of President Trump, who opted for dialogue instead of confrontation. You know, we also mentioned our concern about the withdrawal of the United States from the JCPOA. Well, uh, the U.S., our U.S. counterparts are aware of our posture. Let me remind you that thanks to the Iranian nuclear deal, Iran became the most controlled country in the world. It's submitted to the control of IAEA. It effectively ensures the exclusively peaceful nature of the Iranian nuclear program and strengthens the non-proliferation regime. While we discussed the internal Ukrainian crisis, we paid special attention to the bona fide implementation of Minsk agreements by Kiev. At the same time, the United States could be more decisive in nudging the Ukrainian leadership and encourage it to uh, work actively in this. We paid more attention to economic ties and economic cooperation. It's clear that both countries, the business of both countries, are interested in this. American delegation was one of the largest delegations on the St. Petersburg Economic Forum it featured over 500 representatives of American businesses. We agreed, me and President Trump, we agreed to create a high-level working group that would bring together captains of Russian and American business. After all, entrepreneurs and businessmen know better how to articulate this successful business cooperation will let them think and make their proposals and suggestions in this regard. Once again, President Trump mentioned the issue of the so-called interference of Russia in the American elections, and I had to reiterate things I said several times, including during our personal context, that the Russian state has never interfered and is not going to interfere into internal American affairs, including election process. Any specific material, if such things arise, we are ready to analyze together. For instance, we can analyze them through the joint working group on cybersecurity, the establishment of which we discussed uh, during our previous contacts. And clearly, it's past time we restore our cooperation in the cultural area, in the humanitarian area. As far as I think you know that recently we hosted the American congressman delegation, and now it's perceived and portrayed almost as a historic event 
although it should have been just a current of affairs, just business as usual. And in this regard, we mentioned this proposal to the President. We have to think about the practicalities of our cooperation, but also about the rationale, the underlying logic of it. And we have to engage experts on bilateral relationship who know history and the background of our relationship. The idea is to create an expert council that would include political scientists, prominent diplomats and former military experts on both countries who would look for points of contact between two countries, that would look for ways on putting the relationship on the trajectory of growth. In general, we are glad with the outcome of our first full-scale meeting, because previously we only um, had a chance to talk briefly on international fora. We had a good conversation with President Trump, and I hope that we start to understand each other better, and I'm grateful to Donald for, that, for it. Clearly, um, there are some challenges left when we were not able to clear all the backlog, but I think that we made the first important step in this direction. And in conclusion, I want to point out that this atmosphere of cooperation is something that we are especially grateful for to our Finnish hosts. We are grateful for Finnish people and Finnish leadership for what they've done. I know that we've caused some inconvenience to Finland and we um, apologize for it. Thank you for your attention. Thank you. I have just concluded a meeting with President Putin on a wide range of critical issues for both of our countries. We had direct, open, deeply productive dialogue. Went very well. Before I begin, I want to thank President Ninisto of Finland, for graciously hosting today's summit. President Putin and I were saying how lovely it was and what a great job they did. I also want to congratulate Russia and President Putin for having done such an excellent job in hosting the World Cup. It was really one of the best ever, and your team also did very well. It was a great job. I'm here today to continue the proud tradition of bold American diplomacy. From the earliest days of our republic, American leaders have understood that diplomacy and engagement is preferable to conflict and hostility. A productive dialogue is not only good for the United States and good for Russia, but it is good for the world. The disagreements between our two countries are well known, and President Putin and I discuss them at length today. But if we're going to solve many of the problems facing our world, then we're going to have to find ways to cooperate in pursuit of shared interests. Too often in both recent past and long ago, we have seen the consequences when diplomacy is left on the table. We have also seen the benefits of cooperation. In the last century, our nations fought alongside one another in the Second World War. Even during the tensions of the Cold War, when the world looked much different than it does today, the United States and Russia were able to maintain a strong dialogue. But our relationship has never been worse than it is now. However, that changed as of about four hours ago. I really believe that. 
Nothing would be easier politically than to refuse to meet, to refuse to engage, but that would not accomplish anything. As president, I cannot make decisions on foreign policy in a futile effort to appease partisan critics or the media or Democrats who want to do nothing but resist and obstruct. Constructive dialogue between the United States and Russia for the opportunity to open new pathways toward peace and stability in our world. I would rather take a political risk in pursuit of peace than to risk peace in pursuit of politics. As president, I will always put what is best for America and what is best for the American people. During today's meeting, I addressed directly with President Putin the issue of Russian interference in our elections. I felt this was a message best delivered in person, spent a great deal of time talking about it, and President Putin may very well want to address it and very strongly, because he feels very strongly about it, and he has an interesting idea. We also discussed one of the most critical challenges facing humanity, nuclear proliferation. I provided an update on my meeting last month with Chairman Kim on the denuclearization of North Korea. And after today, I am very sure that President Putin and Russia want very much to end that problem, going to work with us, and I appreciate that commitment. The president and I also discussed the scourge of radical Islamic terrorism. Both Russia and the United States have suffered horrific terrorist attacks, and we have agreed to maintain open communication between our security agencies to protect our citizens from this global menace. Last year, we told Russia about a planned attack in St. Petersburg, and they were able to stop it cold. They found them. They stopped them. There was no doubt about it. I appreciated President Putin's phone call afterwards to thank me. I also emphasized the importance of placing pressure on Iran to halt its nuclear ambitions and to stop its campaign of violence throughout the area, throughout the Middle East. As we discussed at length, the crisis in Syria is a complex one. Cooperation between our two countries has the potential to save hundreds of thousands of lives. I also made clear that the United States will not allow Iran to benefit from our successful campaign against ISIS. We have just about eradicated ISIS in the area. We also agreed that representatives from our national security councils We'll meet to follow up on all of the issues we addressed today and to continue the progress we have started right here in Helsinki. Today's meeting is only the beginning of a longer process, but we have taken the first steps toward a brighter future and one with a strong dialogue and a lot of thought. Our expectations are grounded in realism, but our hopes are grounded in America's desire for friendship, cooperation, and peace. And I think I can speak on behalf of Russia when I say that also. President Putin, I want to thank you again for joining me 
for these important discussions and for advancing open dialogue between Russia and the United States. Our meeting carries on a long tradition of diplomacy between Russia, the United States, for the greater good of all. And this was a very constructive day. This was a very constructive few hours that we spent together. It's in the interest of both of our countries to continue our conversation, and we have agreed to do so. I'm sure we'll be meeting again in the future, often, and hopefully we will solve every one of the problems that we discussed today. So, again, President Putin, thank you very much. All right. So we'll come back, give you the rest of the uh, press conference when we return. Let's catch up what's happening now. Let's join our news bureau to find out about that. And then we'll be back for more of the Dave Ellswick Show. Meshkov, Interfax Information Agency, I have a question to President Trump. During your recent European tour, you've mentioned that the implementation of the North Stream 2 gas pipeline makes Europe a hostage of Russia. And you suggested that you could free Europe from this uh, by supplying American LNG. But this cold winter actually showed that the current model, current uh, mechanism of supply of fuel to Europe is quite viable. At the same time, as far as I know, U.S. had to buy even Russian gas for Boston. I have a question. The implementation of your idea has a political tinge to it, or is it a practical one? Because there will be a gap formed in the supply and demand mechanism. And first, it's the consuming countries who will fall into this gap. And the second question, before the meeting with President Putin, you called him an adversary, a rival. And yet, you expressed hope that you will be able to bring this relationship to a new level. Did you manage to do this? No, actually, I called him a competitor. And a good competitor he is. Uh, And I think the word competitor is a... uh, Supplement. Uh, I think that uh, we will be competing when you talk about the pipeline. I'm not sure necessarily that uh, it's in the best interests of Germany or not, but that was a decision that they made. We'll be competing. As you know, the United States is now, uh, or soon will be, but I think it actually is right now the largest uh, in the oil and gas world. So we're going to be selling LNG and we'll have to be competing with the pipeline. And I think we'll compete successfully, although there is a little advantage locationally. So I just wish them luck. I mean, I did. I discussed with Angela Merkel in pretty strong tones. But I also know where they're all coming from. And uh, they have a very close source. So we'll see how that all works out. But we have lots of sources now. And the United States is much different than it was a number of years ago when we weren't able to extract what we can extract today. So today we're number one in the world at that, and I think we'll be out there competing very strongly. Thank you very much. 
If I may, I throw in some two cents. We talked to Mr. President, including this subject as well. We are aware of the stance of President Trump, and I think that we, as a major oil and gas power, and the United States is a major oil and gas power as well. We could work together on regulation of international markets because neither of us is actually interested in the plummeting of the, of the prices. And the consumers will suffer as well. And the consumers in the United States will suffer as well. And the uh, shale gas production will suffer. Because beyond a certain price bracket, it's no longer profitable to, to produce gas. But uh, nor we are interested in driving prices up because it will drain juices, life juices from all other sectors of the economy, from machine building, etc. So we do have space for cooperation here. That's the first thing. Then about the North Stream 2. Mr. President voiced his concerns about the possibility of disappearance of transit through Ukraine, and I reassured Mr. President that Russia stands ready to maintain this transit. Moreover, we stand ready to extend this transit contract that is about to expire next year in case if the dispute between the economic entities dispute will be settled in the Stockholm arbitration court. The first question for many U.S. journalists goes to Jeff Mason from Reuters. Thank you. Mr. President, you tweeted this morning that it's U.S. foolishness, stupidity, and the Mueller probe that is responsible for the decline in U.S. relations with Russia. Do you hold Russia at all accountable for anything in particular? And if so, what would you, what would you consider them that they are responsible for? Yes, I do. I hold uh, both countries responsible. I think that the United States has been foolish. I think we've all been foolish. We should have had this dialogue a long time ago. Uh, a long time, frankly, before I got to office. And I think we're all uh, to blame. I think that the United States now has stepped forward along with Russia, and we're getting together, and we have a chance to do some great things, whether it's nuclear proliferation in terms of stopping. We have to do it. Ultimately, that's probably the most important thing that we can be working on. But uh, I do feel that uh, we have both made some mistakes. I think that the, the probe is a disaster for our country. I think it's kept us apart. It's kept us separated. There was no collusion at all. Uh, everybody knows it. Uh, people are being brought out to the fore. Uh, so far that I know, virtually none of it related to the campaign. And they're going to have to try really hard to find somebody that did relate to the campaign. That was a clean campaign. I beat Hillary Clinton easily. And frankly, uh, we beat her and I'm not even saying from the standpoint, we won that race. And it's a shame that there can even be a little bit of a cloud over it. Uh, people know that, people understand it, but the main thing, and we discussed this also, is zero collusion. And it has had a negative impact upon the relationship of the two largest nuclear powers in the world. We have 90% of nuclear power between the two countries. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous what's going on with the probe. For President Putin, if I could follow up as well. Um, why should Americans and why should President Trump believe your statement that Russia did not 
intervene in the 2016 election, given the evidence that U.S. intelligence agencies have provided? And will you consider extraditing the 12 Russian officials that were indicted last week by a U.S. grand jury? Well, I'm going to let the president answer the second part of that question. But as you know, uh, the whole concept of that came up perhaps a little bit before, but it came out as a reason why the Democrats lost an election, which, frankly, they should have been able to win because the Electoral College is much more advantageous for Democrats, as you know, than it is to Republicans. Uh, We won the Electoral College by a lot, 306 to 223, I believe. And uh, that was a well fought, uh, that was a well fought battle. We did a great job. And frankly, uh, I'm going to let the president speak to the second part of your question. But uh, just to say it one time again, and I say it all the time, uh, there was no collusion. I didn't know the president. Uh, There was nobody to collude with. There was no collusion with the campaign. And every time you hear all of these, you know, 12 and 14, it's stuff that has nothing to do. And frankly, they admit these are not people involved in the campaign. But to the average reader out there, they're saying, well, maybe that does. It doesn't. Uh, And even the people involved, some perhaps told misstories, although in one case the FBI said there was no lie. There was no lie. Somebody else said there was. Uh, We ran a brilliant campaign, and that's why I'm president. Thank you. As to who is to be believed and who is not to be believed, you can trust no one if you take this. Where did you get this idea that President Trump trusts me or I trust him? He defends the interests of the United States of America, and I do defend the interests of the Russian Federation. We do have interests that are common. We are looking for points of contact. There are issues where our postures diverge, and we are looking for ways to reconcile our differences, how to make our effort more meaningful. We should not proceed from the immediate political interests that guide certain political powers in our countries. We should be guided by facts. Could you name a single fact that would definitively prove the collusion? This is utter nonsense. Just like the President recently mentioned, Yes, the public at large in the United States had a certain perceived opinion of the candidates during the campaign, but there's nothing particularly extraordinary about it. That's a usual thing. President Trump, when he was a candidate, he mentioned the need to restore the Russia-U.S. relationship, and it's clear that certain parts of American society felt sympathetic about it, and different people could express their sympathy in different ways. But isn't that natural? Isn't it natural to be sympathetic towards a person who is willing to restore the relationship with our country, who wants to work with us? We heard the accusations about the Concord country. Well, as far as I know, this company hired American lawyers, and the accusations doesn't, doesn't, have, a bucket, uh, doesn't have a fighting chance in the American uh, courts. 
So there's no evidence when it comes to the actual facts. So we have to be guided by facts, not by rumors. Now, let's uh, get back to the issue of these 12 alleged intelligence officers of, uh, of Russia. I don't know the full extent of the situation, but the President Trump mentioned this issue, and I will look into it. So far, I can say the following. The things that off the top of my head, we have an acting, an existing agreement between the United States of America and the Russian Federation, an existing treaty that dates back to 1999, uh, the mutual assistance on criminal cases. This treaty is in full effect. It works quite efficiently. On an average, we initiate about 100, 150 criminal cases upon requests from foreign states. Uh, for instance, the last year, uh, there was a, one extradition case upon the request sent by the United States. So this treaty has specific legal procedures. We can offer that the appropriate commission headed by, by Special Attorney Mueller, he can use this treaty as a solid foundation and send an formal and official request to us so that we would interrogate, we would hold a questioning of these individuals who he believes are privy to some crimes. And our law enforcement are perfectly able to do this questioning and send the appropriate materials to the United States. Moreover, we can meet you halfway, we can make another step. We can actually permit official representatives of the United States, including the members of this very commission headed by Mr. Mueller, we can let them into the country and they will be present to this questioning. But in this case, there is, a, there is another condition. And this kind of effort should be a mutual one. Then we would expect that the Americans would reciprocate and they, they would question officials, including the um, officers of law enforcement and intelligence services of the United States, whom we believe are who have something to do with illegal actions on the territory of Russia. And we have to, um, to request the presence of our law enforcement. For instance, we can bring up the Mr. Browder in this particular case. Business associates of Mr. Browder have earned over one and a half billion dollars in Russia. They never paid any taxes, neither in Russia nor in the United States. And yet the money escaped the country. They were transferred to the United States. They sent a huge amount of money, 400 million as a contribution to, uh, to the campaign of Hillary Clinton. Well, that's their personal case. It might have been legal, the contribution itself, but the way the money was earned was illegal. So we have a solid reason to believe that some intelligence officers accompanied and guided these transactions. So we have a, an interest of questioning them. But we can all, that, that could be a first step, and we can also extend it. Options abound, and uh, they all can be found in an appropriate legal framework. All right, we're going to take a break. We'll come back, finish this up. When we return, don't forget about Sonny's Auto Salvage. 
your number one choice for recycled auto parts, no matter if it's a small piece, a taillight, or a big piece, an engine, Sunny's Auto Salvage can supply you the part you need for your car. They can see, save you about 50% off of a new part by using a part from one of their well-maintained total loss vehicles. And they come with a standard warranty. Every part is guaranteed. It's a one, two, or three-year warranty on all parts and labor, and unlimited mileage goes along with it. It's not just uh, Sonny's Auto Salvage. It's also thousands of other salvage yards all over the United States and in other areas in the world. So when you're looking for a part, go to Sonny's Auto Salvage. Save yourself some money. You can have it shipped right to uh, a local technician and they can take care of it for you or you can have the folks at sunny's auto salvage fix it for you the number 982-7451-982-7451 did you want Legal president framework. trump to Please. win the election yeah. and did you direct any of your officials to help him do that yes i did yes i did because he talked about bringing the u.s russia relationship back to normal I think there can be three questions from the Russian pool. Russia Today, you have the floor. Thank you so much. Uh, good evening to everyone. My name is Ilya Petrenko. RT TV channel. In English. Mr. President, would you please go into the details of possibly any specific arrangements for the U.S. to work together with Russia in Syria? If any of these kind of arrangements were made today or discussed. My question to President Putin in Russian. Since we, we brought up the issue of football several times, I used the football language. Mr. Pompeo mentioned that when we talk about the Syrian cooperation, the ball is in the Syrian court. Um, Mr. Putin, in the Russian court, is it true? And how would you use this fact, the, the, the having the ball? Well, I guess I'll answer the first part of the question. We've worked with uh, Israel long and hard for many years, many decades. I think we've never, never has anyone, any country been closer than we are. Uh, President Putin also is helping Israel. And we both spoke with Bibi Netanyahu, and they would like to do certain things with respect to Syria, having to do with the safety of Israel. So in that respect, we absolutely would like to work in order to help Israel, and Israel will be working with us, so both countries would work jointly. And I think that uh, when you look at all of the progress that's been made in certain sections with the eradication of ISIS, we're about 98 percent, 99 percent there and other things that have taken place that we've done, and that, frankly, Russia has helped us with in certain respects. But I think that uh, working with uh, Israel is a great thing, and creating safety for Israel is something that both President Putin and I would like to see very much. Uh, one little thing I might add to that is the uh, helping of people. Helping of people, because you have such horrible... Um, if, if you see, and I've seen reports, and I've seen pictures, I've seen just about everything, 
And if we can do something to help the people of Syria get back into some form of shelter and uh, on a humanitarian basis, and that's what the word was really, a humanitarian basis, I think that both of us would be very interested in doing that. And we are. We will do that. Thank you very much. Excuse me, but for now, no specific agreements, for instance, between the militaries. Well, our militaries do get along. In fact, our militaries actually have gotten along probably better than our political leaders for years. But our militaries do get along very well, and they do coordinate uh, in Syria and other places. Okay? Thank you. Yes, we did mention this. We mentioned the humanitarian track of this issue. Uh, yesterday, I discussed this with French President Mr. Macron, and we reached an agreement that together with European countries, including France, we will step up this effort. On our behalf, we provide military cargo aircraft to deliver the humanitarian uh, cargo. And today I brought up this issue with uh, President Trump. I think there is plenty of things to uh, to look into. All right, second hour, Dave Ellswick show for a Monday. You'll remember Thursday uh, we talked about the opioid epidemic, but were people that are not addicts, that aren't breaking the law, are not doctor shopping, uh, are they getting caught up kind of the backwash of this? I, I kind of looked at this like I do at gun laws. Gun laws typically get written after there's been some kind of heinous gun crime. And suddenly somebody thinks we need this law or that law. And the only people that really get uh, punished are the the law-abiding citizens because they're the ones that end up doing what the new law says. And in times it is that, you know, you can't carry a weapon unless you have a license and you got to pay you know, the state police, X amount of dollars and things of that nature. And I've always argued for the point that those that aren't guilty shouldn't get caught up and punished for people that are doing guilty behavior, uh, you know, law-breaking behavior. And and I just don't want to see the same thing happen to the people that are on these pain medi- medicines that are getting more than what perhaps the – the, the medical uh, groups say they should have, and we've got uh, doctors that are knocking people's pain meds uh, down, the, the, the power of them, and they're suffering because of it. And uh, Kim Hammer, who's now in the studio with us, called in uh, during the show and, and talked about this because tomorrow they're going to be voting on uh, a particular piece of rule I think it's like Rule 2.4 or something like that uh, is what I understood was the the big rule that everybody's looking at. And uh, Kim, you brought somebody with you today to to talk about this as well. I think it's a serious subject, to, and and I had said that I thought we might want to slow down a little bit and send this back to the medical board and let the doctors speak out because a lot of doctors are speaking out and telling me, and I got. A couple of uh, texts from doctors saying they're afraid of uh, the medical board and that they're going to do something wrong as they're filling out the paperwork or whatever, and the med board's going to come after them. So you tell me, uh, are we moving a little too fast on it? 
I think that we're moving at a steady pace. The um, tomorrow will not be the first time that this uh, 2.4 rule uh, prescribing controlled is the technical title for it. Sub- prescribing controlled substances is going to be heard. In fact, there's you know in public health it was heard, um, and and actually uh, ALC uh, Arkansas Legislative Council last time around they themselves referred it back to the committee for additional. So it's it's been uh, you know looked at. I think tomorrow will be the fourth time that it will be that it will have been looked at. Um, and, and it'll be before the the rules and regs committee, uh, which it's been passed down to us review out and to uh, to go ahead and accept what the medical board has offered up as far as the rules and regs. Um, as far as how long this has been being looked at and discussed, um, I think this would be appropriate time with your uh, permission, Mr. Chair, to uh, introduce the guests that. Uh, we we have in the studio uh we also have uh, uh i still call him chief lane uh former uh police chief at, at benton but uh, kirk lane uh the director uh that that deals with the prescription drug issues and and if you don't care uh, dave would like to give him the mic just to let him tell about some of the history that led up to this law and to these rules being made that right, and, and let me let me say that i never i've not met former chief but I've spoken highly of him several times on my show. He did a, he did a great job when he was chief. So thanks for coming in today. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Good. What I, I had some people in here on Thursday. One lady had three blown discs. Uh, another lady, I'm not sure exactly what her medical prognosis was, but uh, as soon as this was started talked about, their doctors immediately knocked the amount of pain medication that they were being prescribed and they told their patients that they were worried what the you know medical board would do they were very very nervous about in fact a lot of stories that i've read people on the medical board says well the doctors just don't understand well okay i i understand that but here's what i do understand there's people in pain out there that need these medications and something has to be done to make sure that they can live a productive life sure and and with that i think we also need to look at the families that are dealing with the loss of their loved ones because of the opioid epidemic oh i am i have i don't disagree with that sure you know we look at the on a national scale in 2016 the numbers rated about 175 people a day so i've always said if we took 175 people which is about the population of a plane and we crashed a plane every day how long before the government or or the people would stop that airline from flying Um, and that's what we're facing right now so we have to deal with our prescribing rate and there's a lot of factors with that and also temper it with the fact that people need medication when they need medication but the the one problem that we have is in 2015 we were eighth in the nation for our prescribing rate at 115 and between 15 and 16 we actually went down to 114.6 prescriptions for every 100 people yet we moved to number two in the nation because in 2016 the cdc came out with guidelines uh, for doctors on how to prescribe in the opioids yet arkansas didn't embrace it and because of that we don't have any guidelines for uh 
following what the CDC says to do to try to reduce our rate. And because of that, we're at 114.6, and the national average in that same year, the national average is 66.5. So you have a very opioid-dependent population. All right. So is it that we need to keep track of how many opioids each doctor is prescribing? Sure. I think it's a combination of things. I think we need to re-educate some prescribers on proper opioid prescribing, have a rate that they can go by. The rate doesn't say, or the guidelines doesn't say that they're not going to be prescribed. It's just at a certain point, a doctor has to do more documentation before they prescribe. And it basically encourages them to start low and go slow and treat that patient the way they need to be treated. Has the medical board spoken to physicians and they heard back from the physicians or are the physicians you know, worried that the medical board, you know, if you're one of them that speaks up, that they, uh, they're they going to look at you and say, well, hmm, maybe we should look a little closer at where this guy's at. I believe the medical board has done a number of public hearings uh, have been represented by different associations like the Medical Society. Uh, the doctors have been represented and followed all that information I presented to them. Uh, also in that, uh, on during that public hearings about what other states were doing and what I felt the prescribing rate ought to be uh, and came out with these guidelines. So, you know, I, I've got to wonder, I've heard patients say that their doctors have told them they're going to lower it all the way down, start again from there. The patient is in pain because of that. Is it is it happening because the doctors don't understand or the doctors are intimidated by the medical board? And if that's the case and the medical board may feel like they're not being in, in, intimidating, what can be done about that? I mean, or, or am I just hearing from outliers, you know, that that's outlier. That means outside, okay, a small group outside, not people lying, okay? I just want to sure. make sure everybody understands what I'm talking about. I think it's a combination of, of probably a little bit of all. I think there's a, a real need for re-education in the state, not only in the state but in the nation. You know, the National Safety Council came out in, in April and said that Arkansas is in the eighth lowest states for doing something about the opioid epidemic. And one of the issues that they brought up was prescriber education and the lack of guidelines. And so we're about to achieve that because in this Rule 2.4, it also has some required training for doctors. And there has been a number of uh, efforts from my office from UAMS and from the uh, Department of Health to give education free of charge to doctors learning about how to properly prescribe opioids. Because when you do prescribe them, you need to understand your limitations. And also there ought to be a plan for winning that patient off and not keeping them chronically addicted to or dependent upon uh, opioids. Are there not specific, uh, you know, cases or or, or diseases that people have that being on an opioid until something else is de- designed or discovered they can do the same thing and 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 keep a person pain free is discovered i mean there's, sure. there's some yeah. people that they need it i mean it's just yeah. the sad i believe there i believe there is uh in that in that aspect but there also are times when somebody can go to an alternate uh prescription other than an opioid to deal with their problems and, and a plan to keep them from being a chronic 
uh, user of it. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes people refer to uh, the opioid epidemic as being an addict or being dependent. It's basically the same thing. A lot of people aren't taking opioids to get high. They're, they're tra- taking them to feel normal or to feel painless. And there needs to be some understanding in that. Uh, and we need to find ways to keep people less being dependent. UMS came out with a, a valuable study where 1.3 million prescriptions were studied and showed that anybody past three or four days of prescribing for an acute type still stands a chance like seven days to be uh, double the aspect of becoming a chronic abuser. So I think we need to be careful when we prescribe for acute like an injury or a, a quick surgery or something like that and not give somebody a 30-day supply, a 60-day supply that leads them into that chronic abuse stage. All right. We've got to take a break. We'll be back. Uh, what's your what's your your uh, title now? i, I got to get it right. I'm the state drug director. Okay. We're going to come back and talk to the state drug director because I want to call him chief of police and – that's not right now. He's He's gone up the ladder. Just let you know. Hey, don't forget about our friends at Horton's Orthotics and Prosthetics. Uh, the work continues over at 12th Street. That is their original location that this business uh, began, and that was back in the 80s. It was a, a home uh, that they used uh, for the facility. Uh, it was built in the late 1800s. And uh, it was time for an upgrade. So that's what they're doing now. They've taken out about two-thirds of that house, taken out all of the uh, foundation and whatnot, and they've uh, got six locations now. But they're making this 12th Street their state-of-the-art facility uh, that has a new gate room and has a new large waiting room, uh, has a new area just for mastectomy patients, so it has the privacy and comfort uh, while they're being fitted. And the thing that I'm really excited about uh, with Hortons that uh, should be in use within the next maybe three to six months is they have a 3D printer. They're literally going to be, instead of having to make a mold for your prosthetic, they'll take a, a device, run that over your, uh, you know, where you were, had the amputation at. You will feed that information into a computer and then they will press a couple of buttons on that computer, and it will print a 100% exactly what you need to fit your leg. Yeah, I can't wait to see this thing work. I was talking to Gary Horton about it, the owner of Horton's Orthotics and Prosthetics, and he's all fired up about it. All they're waiting now is for the material that they make the uh, prosthetic out of to be strong enough that they can be sure that it's going to last for you. So remember now, they got six locations with their new updated facility in Little Rock. They also have North Little Rock, Bryant, Conway, Fort Smith, and Searcy. Other locations to be named later. It's Horton's Orthotics and Prosthetics providing a lifetime of support. Hey, don't forget about... uh My good friend, David Lucas, he wants to know that everything you know about claiming your Social Security benefits has been turned upside down, is every year. Federal government puts in another rule here or another reg there, and by the time they get them all in and passed, uh, the way you want to go claiming your benefits uh, can be totally different than what you had thought about the year before. 
and that decision could cost you tens of thousands of dollars in lost benefits over the lifetime of your retirement, costs you higher taxes, costs you increased Medicare premiums. Uh, get the facts and the updated 2018 Guide to Social Security from David Lucas of the David Lucas Show. Uh, you hear him every Saturday here on 101.1 FM, The Answer, at 10 o'clock and again at 3 o'clock. This simple and easy-to-read guide is packed full of up-to-date information for 2018 that could help you avoid losing that money that we talked about earlier and make sure you're getting the benefits that are rightfully yours. To get your free 2018 Guide to Social Security, give a call to 501-653-6690. That number again is 501-653-6690. We're talking about uh, the opioid epidemic. We know that it's bad. Uh, I mean, police officers in most cities in America now uh, carry a, a special uh, medicine that they can give to people that have suffered from opioid uh, overdoses, and it saved a lot of lives thus far. There's there's no argument uh, there. Uh, but some people who are being treated uh, rightfully for the, the pain that they're going through uh, and have been given more than what the medical board would like them to see them be prescribed and want the doctors to give extra documentation and things of that nature uh, have been caught in the middle. And that's where I'm at. I want to make sure that they don't get punished because some other people have been misusing their prescriptions. They didn't read the bottle. They told them only to take one every four hours. And if you've been taking them for longer than X amount of time, you should see your physician again. And they, and they don't do it, and then they find themselves in a serious position. I mean, we all remember the story that that, uh, that listened to Rush Limbaugh, that he ended up out uh, because of some back problems that he had, uh, was out uh, fishing among doctors to make sure that he had uh, the pills that he wanted, not for the pain of his back, but to make him just feel normal because he was addicted. Uh I don't think or I don't know if it was his fault uh, that he didn't follow the way the doctors wanted him to do it or whatever. He might have been, uh, you know, easily led into that addiction just because that's the kind of DNA he's got. So uh, the bottom line was is that I'm all for you guys doing what you need to do to help the people that need help. I just want... Don't forget about the people that need the medicine, not because they just they can't keep themselves from taking it, but they can't live a normal life without it. No, I agree with you, and I think to be clear on that, that the rule that they're proposing does not restrict a doctor from prescribing to a patient. Just when they reach certain levels in that prescribing, it uh, has them do more documentation to justify why. Uh, It doesn't restrict. It doesn't keep them from prescribing. It just gives them more guidance on how to do it. And it gives them a precedent to try to set that. So, you know, a lot of times where people are prescribed, especially when we're talking about an acute type situation for an injury or right after a surgery, uh, they only need so many. And a lot of times that's the problem we're having is we know 68% of the drugs that are being abused by people that are 
basically criminally abusing are coming from our homes. And that's why we practice the drug take back and, and different things of that nature. But if we restricted that where if a person only needed eight to 12 or 16 tablets to get them through their acute illness, um, then they wouldn't have 80 left over that could be for diversion. Mm -hmm. So that's what we're trying to be careful with. All right. We'll be back. We're going to talk, uh, have our our guests with us for the entire hour. Do you all have any problem about taking any calls? No. All right. 823-0965. News is next, and we'll be back with more of the Dave Ellswick Show. All right. So I I got a a text uh, while we're in the break about fentanyl. Um, Do we have a lot of... Well, I, I know we do. A lot of deaths from fentanyl. I mean, Prince is a perfect example of somebody who died of an overdose of fentanyl. And as that story is kind of unraveled, and we've been hearing the, the, the truth of it, he didn't even know he was getting fentanyl. He thought he had some other opioid or something, from what I understood. Is fentanyl considered the most powerful pain drug that's out there right now i mean that's one that they give you when you go in for surgery and stuff and basically doesn't it basically kind of you know paralyze you while you're under it so i don't know if it's the most powerful but it's one of the the powerful drugs that we're dealing with and there's two sides of fentanyl there's a licit fentanyl which is the legal prescription fentanyl okay and then there's an illicit fentanyl uh that's being produced in mainly in china and now probably in mexico and being brought up and mixed into other illicit drugs like heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine, this marijuana. Is, that is not – I'm just going to tell everybody right now, that's not good. Because that medicine, fentanyl, will kill you. It killed Prince. I it mean, kills very know. quickly, too. Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, I read a story. This had to be four or five months ago about six million doses of fentanyl coming from China through the harbor of New York City. And they busted. They 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 got it, but in the uh, interview with the uh, the DEA, they said tip of the tip of the iceberg. There's to kind of give you an idea, one gram of fentanyl, about the what you get in a sweet and low package, contains a thousand dosage units. If it wow, was. and in that same gram, it's five hundred lethal dosage units, so it could kill five hundred people. That's in- that's incredible. I mean, that's that's that little of a dosage. That is, that's how powerful that stuff. And is. And the danger of it is, is fentanyl, even in the prescription form, can be absorbed through your skin. Most people are prescribed it in a patch that they stick upon them. Mm-hmm. Where illicit fentanyl is a powder form, and if you get it on you, or or if it becomes airborne and you breathe it in, that's where it becomes very dangerous. I can only imagine. Really can. I mean, I, I trying to stop this stuff is not going to be any easier than heroin or any other drug. It's difficult. Uh, I just wish the Mexican government government would help us a little bit more south of the border. But they're scared to death they'll get killed if they do. I agree with you. You know, uh, the, the cartels, they're all a bunch of former military people. They don't have any problem killing people. They really don't. All right, Heather was on with us uh, last Thursday. I want to bring her. She's called up. And, Heather, how are you? Welcome to the Dave Ellswick Show. Bring us up to date with you and, uh, you know, what's your question here for our guests today? 
Oh, well, it's a rough day for me. It always is when it rains, but outside of that, I'm doing very well. I would like to um, address something that um, Len said, and I do agree that there is definitely a problem, but I did send a link um, to Kim Hammer, and I really believe that um, Mr. Lane should read it because there is a difference between being physically dependent on a medication, such as someone who has been long treated on opioids and being addicted to the medication. As a chronic pain patient, I understand that for the rest of my life, I'm going to be in a mouth of pain. But the pain medication, when treated properly, allows me to be able to do normal things, such as do laundry, go shopping, have dinner with my friends. The dose I'm on now, I struggle every day. Every day I have to choose. Am I going to cook a meal today or am I going to take a shower today? All right, so you're you're asking uh, Ms. Kirk to take a look at what you've sent to uh, State Representative Hammer. Is that correct? Absolutely, because, yes, of course, um, your body will become physically dependent to an opioid. However, if you're not abusing it, you're taking it like you're supposed to, not getting high. I'm, one of us that are using it properly, as prescribed, are trying to get high off of it. And we're not trying to eliminate our pain. That is impossible to do. That would put us in a comatose state if we took enough medication to be completely out of pain. I just need you know you to try to realize that there is a difference between a physical dependence and going through withdrawals if you get off of it and a psychological or emotional dependence. And we do need to address that. I've talked to three surgeons, and all three of them have told me, no, um, the sur- we can't do the surgery on you because it's going to make you worse, and it's so dangerous that you might not be able to walk afterwards. Can, Heather, so, you mind if I ask you a question? Please. Tell me about your experience when you talked to your doctor, if you had been on that dosage that you were on, and how long were you on that dosage before he or she reduced it? Okay. Um, I had been on the exact same dosage for over five years and never asked for an increase in medication, even though I did build up the tolerance to it and was in a little bit more pain than I had been. The reason I didn't ask for an increase is because I understand that building up a tolerance and going to a higher dose, eventually I'll build up tolerance to that. So I wasn't going to ask for an increase in my pain meds until I was not able to function anymore. Did your doctor, when you talked to him about it, did he say that the dose that you'd been on for the last five years was conforming to the CDC guidelines that were um, implemented, or did he say if it if your five-year history was above the level? Oh, it was definitely above the level because um, I received my first cut, I believe, last year in June where my medication was actually cut in half, and then it was cut again. So... What I, I mean, my doctor has told me that we don't want to be targets. They're basically taking a wait-and-see stance to see if the medical board starts pulling these pain specialists in front of them and, you know, reprimanding them for prescribing more. And I understand that. If I was a pain doctor, I wouldn't risk all that college and my mortgage and putting food on my table to help a patient, even if I felt that the level of medication they needed needed to be increased. I understand the doctor's fears of it. And 
I keep hearing repeatedly, we're not saying you can't prescribe it. However, I would just like it to be sent back to the medical board to state that, okay, if a person such as me, who has already been on this medication, is completely compliant, always has been, has tried the alternative treatments, that, you know, they will at least consider that. I shouldn't have to start from level zero at this minimum amount and go back and reprove that the alternative treatments aren't enough. And so when you, did, when you, your doctor, is he a pain specialist or is he a general yes. practitioner? Pain specialist. My, I went to see my general practitioner for the first time um, because I thought something was wrong with my leg. My leg was just killing me. Um, he referred me to a pain specialist and had to get an MRI, do x-rays. And when I finally got in to see this doctor, my first pain specialist, the doctor didn't just say, okay, here's a bunch of drugs, you know, and sent me home. No, we tried Celebrex and low doses of other stuff. And then, you know, they eventually increased me. And I had to go to physical therapy. I had to get the spinal injections. We tried alternate treatments first, you know, and I agree with some of the stuff that is uh, written up in 2.4. We do need to get stricter on acute prescribing. I think that, you know, if you need um, pain medication for more than just, you know, what a regular doctor can prescribe you, that you should have to see a pain specialist. I understand that. But for people like me where surgery isn't an option, this medication is the difference between being able to do normal things that people take for granted or being bedridden or having to check myself into an assisted living facility and I wouldn't be able to be with my husband if I did that. Basically, it's taking away my right to pursue happiness. Sure, and the guidelines don't restrict the chronic uh, prescribing. It just states that the doctor or the prescriber has to document more on why they're prescribing that. It doesn't really set a guideline to start all over again or anything of that nature. You have a consistent medical history with that doctor. Uh, it's mm-hmm. a very simple task to just document that and move forward on each pa- because each patient is different. The guidelines really, uh, when I look at them, uh, really set a guideline for acute prescribing to try to keep people from being a chronic or having a chronic dependency or leading them into abuse of it. So it, I, it's just good information uh, for those doctors to get re-educated about opioids and try to seek um, some type of alternative medication, alternative prescribing for those I, where it may work. I agree with that completely. Um, here's another issue that I had is that um, in the beginning of last year, my doctor um, put me on a medication called Nisenta, and it was an amazing medication. It um, didn't give me that feeling like I'd taken Benadryl like Percocet can do. I was using it for breakthrough pain. It seemed like a miracle drug. Okay, I went back and asked my doctor, "What's the, okay, there's got to be a text. Am I going to fall out from seizures? Is my heart going to explode? My doctor kind of laughed and said, no, it's just really expensive. Well, after six months of being on it, it was $600 a month for the Nacenta. After six months, my insurance decided they weren't going to pay for it. And I had to go back on Percocet, which was not as effective and does have some, you know, side effects that the Nacenta didn't have. Later on, when I started doing research on it, I found out that Nacenta is one of these amazing drugs that has a deterrent in it. That if you try to abuse it, 
you can't. It actually has a, a something in it, a chemical in it, that counteracts it, so you can't abuse it. And there are many FDA-approved opioid medications out there that are like this. Why are we not addressing this issue and making the insurance companies put these into place? That would definitely keep you know people from abusing it. Well, I can tell you in, in some of the meetings that I had with the with NIDA and some of the other uh, programs that that is being addressed to try to find painkiller type medications that are not opioid based or to have some way to keep them from being abused. So that is in progress. Well, I, I would like to see that. And I really appreciate you guys taking the time to listen to me. All right, Heather, thanks for your call. I appreciate you. Keep in touch with me. Let me know how things are going. All right. I sure will. Thank you so much, Dave. All righty. Bye-bye now. All right. So we got to get a break in, then we'll come up, finish up uh, this hour. It's gone very, very quickly. Uh, and uh, if uh, the state representative, if our – you're not known as the, tr- the drug czar, right? I can be. Okay. The drug czar <laughs> will uh, bring, give you more information, and uh, we'll talk about what time this meeting – uh, tomorrow it's going to, to happen and things of that nature. It's all coming your way. Don't forget about Aero Plumbing, aeroplumbing.net, their website. Uh, go to you know your uh, Google site. Just type in uh, Aero, and uh, you'll get to all the uh, necessary information to be able to talk to them, set up an appointment or whatever. It's the only plumbing company I use. Uh, real quick, I, I, I bought a house uh, 14 years ago out in Cabot. And suddenly I lost all the power uh, at the sinks. You know, there's nothing worse than trying to take a shower and it's just dribbling out on you. And uh, so I called two other uh, plumbing uh, businesses. One wanted to start digging up my front yard, and I knew it wasn't anything like that. And uh, the other said, it's your pressure regulator, Dave, but I don't know where it's at. I called Arrow, who had been... Uh, advertising on the radio station that I worked at. I talked to Earl, uh, the owner. He says, I have somebody out there this afternoon. They showed up. Uh, I told them what the problem was. They got, I'm not kidding you, they got out of their truck, that well warehouse on wheels they, care, they, they use. He walked from my driveway to the front of my house, reached down and pulled out a device, put it in his truck, took a new one out of a box, put it back in, and I had all my po- all the pressure, water pressure back. It was that quick. At that moment, they became my go-to plumber, all right? Now they've also got the 100% satisfaction guarantee uh, that if you're not 100% satisfied with the service that they've provided, they'll refund all of your money. And if that's not enough, enough if they don't wear the shoe co- uh, covers or they swear in your house, uh, you don't have to pay for the service then either. That's Aero Plumbing. They go way above and beyond. It's aeroplumbing.net or just on Google, Aero Plumbing. All right, let's finish up this hour on the Dave Ellswick Show, get back and talk further. Uh, is is the problem, as far as you're seeing this, uh, Representative Hammer, is it is it? the doctors is it the patients is it the medical board and i it probably is a little bit of each one but uh what can be done to try to take care of each of those three different 
entities sure first thing i want to say is i know you've got followers on facebook and when i was giving you the cut signal a while ago yeah i wasn't wanting you to cut heather off because I, I, yeah. I sent her a message i just want to make sure if you needed to get the break in so for everybody following on facebook no i wasn't telling them to dump heather no and i did send her a message i want to continue a communication line with her i would use the phrase perfect storm uh as far as where we are right now because it's a combination of things uh it's a it's a problem that was not addressed in a timely manner when it started and it is our generation it is this group of legislators and people uh, in positions of authority uh to address it and anytime you have to have that uh it's going to create some turmoil uh part one of the things that was said in a meeting uh several months ago was that when when they were teaching doctors under the old ways they were teaching them you make sure you keep your patient comfortable no matter what and i think that's a that's a that's not a criticism throwing anybody under the bus it's just old school the way it was and because of that that was taught 30 40 years ago and just throw pain medicine at the problem now it has caught up to this generation and now they're teaching doctors you know under the new guidelines look you you keep them to a limited amount and they are making corrective action but in the meantime we've got a generation we got to deal with um so i and, and again i think that there has to be good communications between the physicians and and the medical board that is over the physicians that when it comes to documentation and excessive prescribing, clear up the gray area as far as what does that mean. Because if you've got a bunch of physicians that are scared out there because they could lose their license, which directs how they're going to make their living, or you've got an older generation of physicians that are about to say, chunk it, I'm done, I'm not going to do it, I've been doing this long enough and and i'm not going to do it there's some dialogue that needs to take place among all the parties whether it's legislators director lane the medical board the medical society uh the patients the physicians but you know the the table is here and it's being set for us to start those and have those discussions what's to keep uh somebody that you're going to see as a specialist from dumping off on a primary care physician to take care of all the prescribing well, and that's one reason I was asking Heather the questions I was a while ago, because the word I'm getting back is that those that are going to specialists are having procedures and they get their initial dose of seven days, which we're looking at trying to get that back to what the federal level is looking at as far as maybe cut down to five days to reduce that percentage that Kirk was talking about a while ago. Um, you know, my personal opinion, but this is just a statement um, if you're the physician doing the procedure you ought to be the pr- physician that's following up on that patient for a length of time to make sure that patient is getting the treatment that they need and don't push them back to their primary care physician and dump the workload on them because i think that's abandonment that's my you know uh, layman's perspective of things and if you're going to do the procedure then maybe you need to be responsible because that would make you more conscientious and put some skin in the game as far as as far as being the physician that's doing the the surgery all right so kirk you're going to be at this meeting tomorrow i I will not be there you won't okay so let me ask one last question then of of kim hammer and that is what times it start and where is it at uh and to and to director lane's defense uh he's had a long-standing three or four month obligation and i know for a fact he tried to rearrange it but it was a pretty high level commitment uh i do know the medical board is going to be there represented to talk about the rule but it starts at one o'clock tomorrow uh in what we refer to as the big big mac building uh which is on the on the west side of the capitol 
and um, it's going to be at one o'clock and the public is you know allowed and invited to attend uh, they've been pretty you know pretty active about attending in the past and um, it probably won't get heard based on the agenda till about 120 ish uh, but the meeting starts at one o'clock and i'll be chairing the committee meeting two minutes for you uh, uh kirk and, and if you would something anything important that you think we haven't covered that needs to be said sure and, and i First of all, thank you for allowing me to come on the show. Well, it's an important topic. People need to know what's going on. And, you know, I think what's important is we all need to understand that we all have to work together to resolve this problem, that it it is an epidemic, what I call an opidemic, and it affects everybody uh, across the board. And there's got to be balances in here where we have to weigh uh, the rights and needs of others. But it really comes down to uh, getting quality medical care, uh, getting good education on the on the latest and greatest tools to help with that quality medical care and to try to reduce the abuse and addiction that's going on. Uh, it's going to take us a, a while to do it. It's probably not going to be solved in our generation, and we probably need to start educating the next generation on how to solve this problem. Well, you remember D.A.R.E.? I remember D.A.R.E. being the thing that we did in it helped turn the tide somewhat, sure. you know, as far as that's concerned. So I want to thank both of you for coming in. Good luck tomorrow, Kim Hammer. You're the co-chair, right? Uh, I'm the House chair, and I'll be chairing tomorrow. Oh, okay. So you're the House. Who's the Senate chair? Uh, David Sanders. Oh, okay. Boy, he's he's running out of time. He's running out of time, but <laughs> but uh, he's made some valuable contributions along the way. All right. We appreciate you both for being here. Coming up. Conduit for Action going to join us in the last hour. Robert Steinbach and I will talk. Is it the kettle calling the pot black when we tell the Russians to quit meddling in our elections, but we meddle in other countries' elections? We'll talk about that in the final hour of the Dave Ellswick Show. All right, our friends from Conduit for Action are going to join us here this hour on the Dave Ellswick Show. We'll turn our attention uh, here to the state of Arkansas, as we did in our last hour, talking about uh, the uh, big meeting coming up at Supermax tomorrow, dealing with opioids and some of the changes that are going to be made uh, in how doctors uh, have to fill out paperwork and things of that nature for filling, uh, you know, for being able to prescribe opioids uh, to their patient. Uh, it's been an interesting couple of days that we've covered this from a patient's point of view of needing the opioids to treat their pain to uh, what uh, this group is trying to do of legislators and the medical board. Uh, Kirk Lane, the, uh, the drugs are basically here in the state talking with us today and some of the real problems that are out there with opioid addiction, uh, overprescription, uh, all kinds of things going on and how they're trying to address uh, those problems. And uh, if you go back to uh, the Dave Ellswick show on Facebook, uh, my Facebook page, and uh, you should um, like that page, by the way, and that way you're going to always get an update that I'm getting ready to do a, uh, a live shot uh, on, my, on my Facebook. But most of the time my live shot, I come during my show Monday through Friday from 2 until 6, and you can go back and watch last Thursday's show. That would have been on uh, the 12th. And then watch today's hour uh, from uh, 
3 o'clock until 4 o'clock and hear what the uh, our elected officials are trying to deal with as they try to be fair to every party that's involved in this. But right now, let's uh, have Brenda and Joe join us from Conduit for Action. Conduitforaction.org is their website. Uh, interesting articles. I was just looking at one a moment ago. Uh, well, a moment ago is a couple hours back. Uh, the Clowart Piven strategy orchestrating a crisis so government can, quote, solve it. And, and every time I read that, it makes me think of uh, a, a friend that I made when he ran for um, president several times, uh, Harry Brown, who ran for the Libertarian Party. And one of his favorite sayings is, uh, the government breaks your legs and then shows up a couple of weeks later and uh, offers you crutches paid for at taxpayers' expense. And he couldn't have been a, any more true on, on that statement. But Brenda and Joe, thanks for joining us today. Brenda, we talked a little bit about what we'd like to talk about today. I want to pick up uh, one part of this right off the, the, uh, the bat. This dealing with uh, uh, Congressman Crawford and some of the things that uh, that he's been dealing with, talking about tariffs and Trump's principles, and how he had made a point on uh, on Harold's program uh, last week about an economic war with China, and uh, you all wanted to discuss how it compares to Germany and Russia according to the president. So with that said, let me turn it over to you and let you start the discussion. And when I have a question or I want to inject something, I'll jump in. How's that? Sounds great. Well, I appreciate you, uh, you know, wanting to discuss this. And I, I would just direct everyone who wants to get more in depth with what Representative Crawford said or Congressman Crawford said on Friday, this past Friday when uh, our president was in um, England and, you know, he he had a really good day and uh, did some good things for our country, I thought. But he brought up the fact with uh, NATO, you know, why should we be paying uh, all the money to support these countries, defend them against Russia, when you have Germany spending, you know, buying 70% of its oil or gas from, from Russia, and, you know, they're, they're paying into the economy of Russia, and then we're having to come up money to cover their debt to protect them against Russia. And that just reminded me, as Joe and I were talking and as I related to you, as to how this is similar to us giving our tax dollars to China, us Arkansans, to put in a factory in Fort, Fort City or wherever, and uh, then we're turning around and fighting them on the, the war against our economy that uh, I think Rick Crawford did a good job of describing. And I, I'm, I will mention this, and I want Joe to talk, but... As we were listening to that interview, I was out of town, and when I heard it, I thought uh, Congressman Crawford just really did a fabulous job, and, and we really get into thinking about it, and someone said who was listening to his talk, well, that's what you all said last week, <laughs> you and Joe. So, yeah, we love it when people agree with us. Yeah, you can, uh, the listeners can find that on YouTube, uh, Conduit News Channel, and just listen to the whole interview, and it's quite interesting, and I, what I would Say would it would be right on the mark, only because he says exactly the way I say it. And it's what uh, you know. It's, we talked about trade a couple of weeks ago, didn't we? Uh, and the aluminum and, and steel tariffs, right? And how that was you know, a defense of 
requirement that that was the job of the federal government. If nothing else, it, it wasn't the federal government's job to subsidize an industry, an agricultural industry that it exports all over the world at that scale, to subsidize the, the agricultural industry in order to be able to feed America in times of need, we could probably agree on that. But to subsidize them to overbuild to the point where they're dependent upon every nickel they can get from somebody that might be our enemy is foolish and maybe even stupid. But what, what we see if we look back over the past three or four decades is most of the people who have promoted certain trade deals with Walmart, I mean, I'm sorry, with China, uh, or is that redundant? Uh, <laughs> but they, they have benefited somehow, either personally or corporately, from those negotiations. And that's not what we're trying to do now. We're trying to benefit the American people and, and the, the entire economy of America. Uh, I think I've mentioned this on the air before about uh, Clinton and the uh, Bill Clinton and the Loral space deal. Uh, people should Google that one because that's where China got its space program kick-started with the guidance systems from Loral Space, which Bill Clinton probably sold to them under the table and called it something else. But I, I would bet he benefited from that. So, you know, this is a straight-up, um, you know, economic defense is what the president is engaging in. It's economic self-defense. And I don't think that uh, Congressman Crawford was really using our exact words. You know, he was uh, affirming the uh, Arkansas farmer, saying thank you for helping us to reclaim our sovereignty, the sovereignty for all Americans, which is really what we're talking about here is what Joe's talking about, economic defense, you know. Uh, but we realize that the Arkansas farmers are taking one for the team, and it's either a drought doing it to a farmer. I mean, I am a farmer. My father, my husband, you know, I grew up in the farm, and that's been my life, and I understand it. Um, probably as much as anyone listening to this program would understand that. Um, but I'm, I just think there's a point in time when you have to look at the bigger picture, and just like Germany, I think Trump is looking at the bigger picture for the United States saying, why are we financing Germany's defense when they're on the other end with a bigger hole than we can ever plug, you know, giving money to the enemy. And I'm asking us, why would we, why would we not look at uh, China the same way just as our state? Why would we want to bring the Chinese in? And I, I feel like we're a very small voice in that area, but it's time that our Kansans start being educated on what's happening with their own money and how our political leadership decides to use it. We'll, we'll take the, uh, the subsidies to Chinese uh, businesses to come to Arkansas. Well, they're not here yet, and they're not, they've not hired the people that they claim, but yet the unemployment rate is 2.7%, thanks to the president. So where are those Chinese companies going to hire those people? From you. They're going to hire them away from businesses like mine and many, many others in Arkansas that are established, that are paying a reasonable wage but with the tax dollars that those same businesses pay to the government, given to the new outside businesses, then they're going to be able to pay the existing employees more to move to that company, not to create new jobs, but to move 
someone from one job to another job and claim that it's a new job. And I think we could listen to uh, Congressman Bruce Westerman, uh, French Hill, probably Steve Womack, and we would hear similar stories about the Chinese and what they know as congressmen and know more than the you know, private citizen would know about the dangers that are going on and, and what's really happening to our country as a result of, of what's been going on for 20 years. Crawford calls it a 20-year economic war that we've been in. Well, I would say it's probably more 40 or 50 year because it, it's been to the benefit of the big governments uh, type people in America to make deals with other countries to seem like they're doing something, but in every one of those deals, we have lost wealth. We know wealth has, has left the country. We've got $20 trillion in debt, and we've got trade deficits of a trillion a year, and that's not sustainable. I mean, at some point, the last person in America with a job needs to turn out the lights, and then what are they going to do? I mean, that is the, the trajectory of what has been going on before the president took charge as someone who knows actually how to run a business for profit, not not an inherited business or a make-believe business. And that's, or, that's or a, a government wonderful, that's not a business. Yeah, a government that likes the perks of the business but can't generate you know, jobs. The, the jobs. <laughs> uh, you know, the free market is a beautiful thing if allowed to work properly and not manipulated. Yeah, it's interesting about what the president said uh, when he was in Germany with and talking to NATO, because uh, I sat in and probably talked what thirty five forty minutes about that last week, uh, Russ. I mean, it seems crazy to me. You've got an ally that has more natural gas than anybody else in the world. We are the Saudi Arabia of natural gas, and now that we know how to cool it down and and ship it safely, it amazes me that the the Germans would want to get their natural gas from the their enemy since the 40s. I mean, it makes no sense to me whatsoever, and the president was right in pointing out that 70% of Germany is going to be getting their natural gas from the Russians and the Russians have been known historically to shut the amount of gas that they export out if they feel it's necessary. Yeah, they are the master blaster, right? <laughs> yeah, they will they will take advantage of that and it only makes sense that you take advantage of that. Well, certainly, and, and it's probably the economics of it are simply if you've got natural gas and have to ship it 200 miles, it's not anywhere near as expensive as it is if you have to ship it 20,000 or 15,000 miles or 10,000, whatever it might be. Yeah, I mean, this, this, this to me, it's beyond understanding and to listen to the head guy from NATO and basically the main the main. Uh, talking mouth for uh, Germany to say, well, we just see this differently. No, it's it, it defies logic what you're doing. Why are you doing it this way? And they don't well, have an they answer. They've got to accept that Russia's their enemy and wants to take over their country at some level, or they've got to accept that Russia's their friend. That's right. If Russia's their enemy, they shouldn't be buying 
and, and subsidizing their economy with all their energy purchases if they're their friends and they don't need NATO to protect them. So you can't have it both ways. And you know something else that came up during that, Joe, was somebody said, the guy, the guy made a guy, I can't think of his name right now, uh, he's from Sweden or something like that. But he he made uh, the the statement. Well, we were doing business, you know, with the Ruskies during the Cold War. Yeah, but you weren't buying gas from them. You you know, it was just like the president said. Uh, trade is trade, but energy is totally different. We'll talk more about this when we come back. I got to get a break in. Let's let's do that, and then we'll come back and talk more about this. It's something that our, our citizens of this country have got to think uh, about. We need to think about that uh, in the last administration, we had our Secretary of State selling uranium to, quote, one of our mortal enemies as well. So we'll come back talk about all of that when we continue here on the Dave Ellswick Show. Uh, show. If you want a, a career working outdoors, serving the community, uh, if you're a person who's detail-oriented, you strive to do the right thing. If you want a career with a leading company uh, and can work with your hands, thrive outside, you need to join the PI Roofing and Home Solutions team because they're expanding their operations department so they can better serve their customers as they grow. So uh, they're saying come build a, a future with them. PI Roofing and Home Solution has career opportunities in the uh, Commercial Roofing and Service Division, Residential Roofing and Service Division, and the Home Solutions Division. So why not make a difference uh, together? Why not uh, you climb your ladder of success with the folks at PI Roofing? Just apply at piroofing.com or call them at 501 707 3551. All right, back with you, uh, Brenda and Joe from Conduit for Action are with us today. We've got uh, about three and a half minutes before the news, so let me just jump right back into what we've been talking about. We've been talking about Germany buying uh, the majority of 70%, to be exact, of their energy needs, uh, natural gas, from the Russians. And uh, you wonder why they're making that that choice when their ally, the United States, can supply all the natural gas they they need uh, for them. And do you have any, you know, idea that you all can come up with about why Germany would buy from Russia? Do you think that because they're buying from them and spending X millions or billions of dollars a year, that that's going to placate them somehow and that they're not going to be in, you know, trying to screw with them in some way? Well, if that would be the case, then why would they need NATO protection? <laughs> so, you know, it does, none of it makes sense. And your audience should consider just backing up and l- just listening to their own common sense. Just list all the things that you're hearing from the media and what makes sense and what doesn't. This is not a difficult thing unless you're, you're bought into a particular ideology. Let's take, for example, just Germany and this what we're talking about. Germany probably has as good of coal reserves as anybody. But they don't uh, use they them. Energy, they can make gas out of coal, or they can just burn 
clean coal, if that's such a, if that's a thing. Or dirty coal. Or dirty coal. <laughs> but the environmentalists there evidently don't want that. In that's correct. So now they put themselves at the mercy. You know, maybe they should just put wind farms all over and, you know, solar panels everywhere and problem solved. Hmm. Yeah, you're you're right about the the whole coal thing because uh, the environmentalists have done to the coal industry in Germany what Obama was working hard to do here in America. Well, you touched on a point earlier that that I thought was excellent that people just never factor in. What's the difference between the uranium sale and the enrichment of the Clinton Foundation? Then a gas sale and the enrichment of a former chancellor of Germany. I mean, that's how this stuff works, people. Yeah, I mean, you know, you know, if you don't wake up and smell the coffee, it's going to happen right here too. Well, but you notice how Trump is the evil one for bringing it up. Yeah, kind of conduit, huh? Well, I'll tell you what irritates me is that we've got all of our politicals. Or, or a good portion of them, except for Rand Paul, he's he's willing to mention uh, the truth of, of the story. And uh, the talk about, uh, well, we'll talk when we come back, and that is how Russia was meddling in our elections. Let's get, let's get to the real truth when we come back here with Joe and Brenda on the Dave Ellswick Show. All right, back with you, Dave Ellswick Show. We've been talking to... Uh, uh, Joe and Brenda, a conduit for action uh, this hour. You know, we were talking uh, before the break, and we were talking about Russia taking uh, gas from, or, or uh, Germany taking gas from Russia. Uh, the thing that has bothered me, guys, here the last few months has been all the people having getting their panties in a wad, uh, dealing about, well, the Russians tried to meddle in our elections. You know, that's not right, and I'll be the first one to agree with that. But right on top of that, I will also say it's not right for us to meddle in other countries' elections. And we've done that for years. I can take you back to the, to the early 50s and, and, and definitely into the 60s when we were meddling in Chile's uh, elections. Up to just recently, 2016, and President Obama using taxpayers' money to campaign to try to get uh, Benjamin Netanyahu unelected in Israel. So why are our politicians suddenly uh, freaking out over all of this? You know, other than uh, for the never-Trumpers, they think that they can get the president for this and um, I, I just like your all's thought about it, isn't it? I think it's a, a great job of selective amnesia uh, by our own intelligence committee uh, committees, you know, CIA, FBI, whomever. Absolutely. I mean, Friday was such a disappointment to see Rod Rosenstein come out so proudly speaking so eloquently about the 12 indictments at the time when Trump was, you know, changing the face of our entire world. Uh, on, you know, on the other side of the world doing such a great job. It's very embarrassing to see that they would now claim such a foul. And, and, uh, but, you know, there again, I think it's just a, a sign of the ignorance. Uh, they're depending on the ignorance of our population, of our voters, 
to uh, be outraged over this manufactured outrage. Yeah, and that's all it is, is manufactured outrage. So, I mean, of course people are attempting to sway elections for their own ends. And that's what happens. Everybody's going to do it. They've said, the Russians have clearly said that they're trying to show that the Democrat system, the, the, a democracy, the voting is not a good system, and they'll disrupt it. And that is their end. It's not for a particular candidate or not, in my view. I mean, you've got the governor of our own state meddling in elections, you know, in, in representative districts. And, I mean, he's got an agenda. He's got an end in mind. And, and that's people get in other people's business all the time. And to think otherwise is just naive. Well, I remember about the Obama getting into Israel's elections, and uh, I don't remember outrage except how I felt in my heart about it, and I have a reason, because, you know, I wanted Netanyahu re-elected, and I wanted um, President Obama to stay out of it, especially with our money. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a political perspective, no doubt, but I also remember when the Republicans and Democrats were both warned by the FBI that the Russians were going to do this, and I recall that the uh, Republican National Committee took action, and apparently Democrats didn't take action well enough, or else the lady with the server in the bathroom didn't know how to, how to work the stuff. I don't know. Well, you, I mean, you, you, you would agree that uh, the Chinese and, and possibly other countries before this came about have established a presence in America. Of course. In different areas of our economy and our political systems to benefit their home country. Um, I think I heard the other day that the uh, Chinese have an office, a technology office, right at, like, within a block or so of the U.S. patent office. I mean, of course they're going to do that because we give away all of our secrets for free. And, and again, if you wanted to get a voter list, you go down to the county and you ask for a voter list, and they'll give it to you. They don't ask if you're a citizen or not. So, I mean, it, this is manufactured outrage because the Russians could get every, the name of every, every voter in America and send them postcards every week. They may be. And they may be doing it. Or disinformation or what have you. And that's what a free society is susceptible to and must be educated and realistic to be aware so that they can survive this kind of thing. We're not going to fold through Russian interference in an election and and secondly is how many times do they tie the russian election meddling to hillary clinton and her loose ways with her server you know she's a very loose woman with her server yeah she and, was you know how many times they tie that to her now, that well it's probably. always tied around trump's neck yeah. why well it depends on what you're watching because if you're watching the network cnn MSNBC, Bloomberg, you watch them, it's everything. It's all negative Trump all the time. And if you're watching Fox News, it's you know somewhat you know circumspect, but generally giving people the benefit of the doubt and then showing hypocrisy. So Americans got to figure out where they are and then go find out why they're there. And if they're not in the right place on these issues, then get in the right place. You know, I, I understand people don't like that Russia was using Facebook and using other methodologies and social media to put out, uh, you know, f 
false news, but our own networks do that as well. I, I Nate Bell does that. You know, so my my question to people is that it's got to be an all around thing. It can't be one country and nobody else does it. It can't be well, we'll get out of it, and the other countries will then get out of it. That's not going to happen uh, anytime soon. From the story that. And I and I, don't, I I very seldom use the New York Times, but I did for this one. The story says Russia isn't the only one meddling in elections. We do it too. It says if you ask an intelligence officer, did the Russians break the rules or do something bizarre? The answer is no, not at all. That's according to Stephen Hall. He retired in 2015 after 30 years at the CIA, where he was the chief of Russian operations. The United States absolutely has, has carried out such election influence operations historically, and I hope we keep doing it because it's for the betterment of our country. It may be we get in and help out, uh, let's say, uh, there, back in Russia uh, where you had, uh, oh, I'm trying to think, who was the, who was the last? president over there just be, uh, before the wall fell i'm um, just trying to th- i can't think of his name right now but yeah, uh, yeah it was yeltsin what was it that was yeltsin and uh who was the Gorbachev. other yeah, that, that was, yeah. <laughs> but, but they got back they got behind the most freedom-loving candidate not neither one of them was 100 percent by any stretch but they tried to sway it uh, to keep uh, to help the people of Russia have freedom. So, I mean, we were involved in that up to our nose. So, I don't know why well, everybody well, we gets so upset. All over hundreds of countries of of uh, freedom propaganda. Absolutely, and people would think that's fine. I'm sure the same people who are now outraged. Uh, had another story then. I don't know. Well, the Russians do not have our best interest in mind. No, of the course Chinese, they don't. They have their own. Well, finally, we have a president that has our interest in mind instead of everybody's but ours. Mm-hmm. He's, he's not on an apology tour, which I just came from an apology tour. Uh, I spent some time the last few days in Boston. And uh, then last night we got home late and I happened to watch uh, Mark Levin, and he was doing an, a great interview with uh, a man by the name of Shelby Steele, written a book called White Guilt and uh, describes, and he happens to be a, a black man, a man of color, ethnic background, is black, and uh, made some very profound uh, statements, and I highly recommend that anyone listening look up that interview and then start doing some research on Shelby Steele. Tell me about the Boston guilt. Well, while I was in Boston, I, you know, we went on the Liberty Walk or whatever and had a tour guide and and, uh, you know, did different things. I don't think I have ever experienced being in a, a culture of such elitism that it wasn't, you know, you weren't made to feel bad or anything. You just feel it. It was, it was you know, very interesting to observe. And uh, hey, Brenda, the doing the tour, you know, he was trying to heap guilt on all of us for our, you know, many sins. And then I would turn around and read on, on the, you know, chiseled in stone of the buildings, not the 1770s um, statements of founders, but statements from the late 1800s about, you know, mistreating others and they're not equal. I could really see where the Kennedys, you know, were coming from because it's like the culture there, but the only thing missing were really there were no minorities. 
very interesting experience. So it was the Blame America First Town? It was, yeah. Yeah, it's amazing to go to Boston, Massachusetts, and walk the Freedom Trail and, and walk to a city that doesn't even believe in freedom for its citizenry, that the government tells them exactly what they should be thinking and doing. It's, it's really, it, it's an odd situation. It was like being on the East Coast and buying uh, uh, a, a shirt that said, uh, you know, live free or die, uh, and uh, realize you're visiting a state that doesn't believe that in the slightest. Well, it was it was really um, an irony on many fronts to think about it and to listen to the the guy, you know, giving the speeches and, and describing what had happened and their part in it, and then seeing how it's lived out and how you know I, I left there with one message: I am to be ashamed of the fact that you know I have mistreated someone. I'm not sure who that who that is, um, but you know, guilt is a tool. And they have refined it, um, you know, quite well. And I think that the thing about the interview that I recommend uh, everyone listen to with the Shelby Steele, you know, he said he and Levin both were talking about really they think there's a crack in the in that you know scenario that the people are starting to see the light. Well, what we have with all these stories that have in common is you know, this the whole media coverage. If you look at it like uh, what is, what is that? Uh, there's a guy that does Media Research Center or something like that. Uh-huh. They come up with statistics, and, and, I mean, who's really interfering with the media in this country? And people should look up the Mockingbird Media and and just see what that conspiracy theory. It doesn't make a little bit of sense, at least. <laughs> it, it's, where the, it's something to do with the, the media all getting together and, and deciding if we're going to make a globalist government and we have to control the message. And I think it's as, as simple as that, maybe not to the extent of the Mockingbird media, but at least it, it is a concerted effort to control the message and drip, drip, drip. And they're just barking up the wrong tree with the American people, cause, especially in the middle of the country, because you know, we, we, we know that that's not going to work here. I mean, we don't take that spoon-fed guilt. I mean, we know who we are here. All right. Maybe the rest of the country on the coast forgot who they were. All right. We need to take our final break. Let's get that in. Brenda and Joe from uh, Conduit for Action is with us. Don't forget their website, conduitforaction.org. All right. Back for the final uh, six minutes here of this hour. It's gone very, very fast with uh, Joe and, and Brenda today. Had a lot of great things to talk about. Uh, the president has how shall I say, not disappointed us in in uh, dealing with some big issues. You know what I really love about this, uh, President Joe and Brenda, is that, you know, back in the day, and back in the day being just a few years ago, uh, if there was any kind of dirty laundry that uh, the uh, United States government was going to deal with one of our allies. We always got behind closed doors and nothing was uh, reported of what was talked about. This president sits down to have breakfast with uh, one of the highest ranking officials of NATO and says, hey, dude, what is this all about? I like that. Get it out in the open and make them talk about it. 
Yeah, that, um, that, I'd, I'd love to, to help with that in Arkansas. I want to I want to comment about that. I, I think that that is um, very admirable, but very shocking to most people. And this is a personal thing. I'm just going to kind of get personal, you know. But that's what Joe does, and uh, a lot of people find that very offensive when he's mostly asking them about things they'd rather not discuss, but they're the white elephant in the room. And, um, you know, I think that we, we wouldn't make it as a country much longer in the country that any of us recognize but for what Trump is doing. And now we have some hope, and we see the economy exploding. I mean, it's quite amazing how repressed it's been for so many years, which we now see so clearly because of this breath of relief we all are experiencing um, but, you know, I think that the left is being, you know, unveiled for what they have been all along. And uh, it is surprising to some people, maybe, but um, I appreciate what Trump is doing. Well, I'm glad he, he called NATO out. It was funny. I had a guest on uh, with us to talk about that meeting, uh, a lieutenant colonel who uh, was the first one who called uh, foul on the intelligence uh, leading up to 9/11, and uh, you, you may be you may remember this guy, but he, and then he wrote a book that they said, "Oh, you're telling secrets and whatnot." But he was on with me, and uh, I was in I was in the military same time that he was, and there was a lot of people didn't know that, and we've been putting extra money into NATO like forever since World War II. We've been carrying the weight of that organization, and I think it's it's an organization that is necessary to keep the military of those countries focused on their enemy, not on their energy provider. But uh, I, I I thought it was interesting. We were talking about Reforager, which was one of the big exercises that we used to have over in Europe uh, back in the 80s. And people, I know people didn't know that when we would have uh, – maneuvers there and our our uh, artillery was out there our tanks were out there if they ran over a farmer's field uh they ended up paying millions of dollars uh to the german government to give to those farmers to repair those fields not nato it wasn't nato it was the united states government that did that and that used to irritate me to no end and uh I was I I just want people to know that NATO has been taking us to the cleaners for a long time. Well, I, I would want to say one more thing before it's too late, but you know, I think if we look at the big picture, Trump has dispelled the claim that well there's nothing we can do about it. You know, like like the NATO thing or you'll hear about giving money to countries that are our enemies but we we have to do it, you know, or or maybe consider the idea of shrinking government. You know, there's nothing we can do about it. Trump is proving there are things we can do about all these issues. And I'm still down with Mexico paying for the wall. That's going to be awesome. Well, I'm still down. I'm still down with with getting that wall, and I'm still down with the federal government. Although I don't think I'll see it in my lifetime. Uh, politicians uh, revamping and fixing our immigration system because that's what needs to be done. Joe and. Uh, Brenda, thanks for being with me again today. It's always a pleasure to have you guys here. Don't forget, everybody, it's uh, conduitforaction.org. Uh, make sure you look up that one article I mentioned early on in the show, the uh, Cloward uh, Piven strategy. 
orchestrating a crisis so government can solve it. And always remember what Harry Brown said, the government breaks your legs, and then they say, here, I got a free pair of crutches for you. <laughs> keep that keep that in mind. All right, I appreciate okay. you all. You have a great uh, rest of your afternoon, and have a great week, all right? Thank you, Dave. All right, talk to you later. Yeah, I mean, I'm seriously about that. That's, that's what the government tells you. You know, breaks your legs and then says, hey, be happy uh, to give you a, a pair of crutches paid for by your next-door neighbor. All right, let's get a break in here, uh, leading or uh, get us some music here, leading us up to the news coming at the top of the, of the hour. I'm going to talk further with uh, Robert uh, Steinbach about Russia isn't the only one meddling in el- elections. We do it as well. And then about Facebook, and is it is it or isn't it a political ad? This is uh, the anti-Christian censorship bigotry of Facebook as they blocked a gospel music group's Zion's Joy song, a new song, What Would Heaven Look Like, a purely spiritual Christian praise song. We'll talk about it when we come back. All right, final hour of the Dave Ellswick Show for a Monday. Tomorrow, Power Panel will be in. Uh, We'll have a a special guest, and uh, let me get uh, his full name. Because uh, you may know him, uh, Robert, to be honest with you. Uh, he's coming in. He's uh, Paul Calvert set this interview up. I thought it would be interesting. And so uh, I asked him, uh, this guy from uh, the Bowen School of Law, to come and join with us to talk about should we have a constitutional amendment uh, here in Arkansas to get rid of state immunity from lawsuits so Josh Silverstein is coming in to join us for an hour at 4 o'clock tomorrow. You know Josh? I know him well, and he'll be fantastic, I guarantee it. And he's really an expert on the issue. you got the right guy to come talk about that. We've got a problem here in Arkansas. Uh, the Constitution is written in a way that says, essentially, if you get hurt by a state employee, guy runs you over, drives over your head, crushes your legs, steals money from you, you can't sue him. Uh, and then they say, well, but you can go to this claims commission, right. which is this kind of put-together organization, and if you want more than $15,000, then it's got to go to the legislature and it's got to vote on that, so good luck with that. So in in effect, if you get hurt by a state actor, you've got no recourse. They can run free. Now, you'll hear people say, well, we're, we're, we're saving taxpayer money. Well, first of all, you're not saving taxpayer money to the taxpayer got run over by the state truck because uh, he's been injured and he hasn't been compensated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the long run, everyone saves money if you create an incentive for safety and for responsibility. The only way you do that is you hold people responsible. Uh, and so we've got to pass an amendment to the Constitution that undoes some very old language in the Constitution that says, essentially, you can't sue the state. And then then it'll be done right. And I know Republicans and Democrats uh, who support this idea. So it's not necessarily a left or right issue. It's a uh, responsible issue. So no, it's right bipartisan, then. Yeah. It is bipartisan. And you got the right guy to come in and talk about it. That's Josh Silverstein, 100%. All right. He'll be here tomorrow at 4 o'clock to spend an hour with us. Looking forward to it. Should be a lot of fun, and I recognize the name uh, as soon as Paul brought it up. Wasn't he involved in this whole discussion uh, about uh, 
about the tenure, right? Yeah, the tenure and all That's that. That's right. That's right. He he took the lead. He's more of an expert on that than I am, and he took the lead. We have a real problem in Arkansas now, and we're going to, as you and I have talked on the air before about, seek legislation to correct uh, this problem uh, as well. And the problem is that uh, uh, we have weakened tenure at the academic universities, and so to non-eggheads, uh, what does that mean? It means people like me who are conservatives who say things out of the norm, the nails that stick up on the deck get hammered. Uh, and so that's what's uh, going to happen as a consequence of this weakening of what's known as tenure and academic freedom, which in a nutshell says academics, professors, people like me, can say the things they believe in even if the administrators uh, or other faculty disagree. And gosh knows, and you know, that uh, I'm a minority when it comes to my viewpoint oh, yeah. in academia. So, uh, like I say, I'm the hammer on the deck that gets nailed, uh, not the other way around. This is academic freedom uh, in today's day and age protects uh, conservatives, but that's the beauty of it. It protects whoever's in the minority. I'm okay with it protects liberals as well if, if conservatives are in the majority. They've got a right to say what they want to say. doesn't mean I agree with it but they got a right to say what, what, what they want to say. And now, in today's day and age, it's a tool that protects us, and that's why the liberals all of a sudden are not so enamored with it, of course. And that's kind of the irony of all of this debate that, or, and discussion that you and I have had uh, for years now on the First Amendment, is that the liberals were the big defenders of the, uh, of the First Amendment, of freedom of speech, when it was liberal speech that was under attack, uh, now it's conservative speech that's under attack, and all of a sudden they're nowhere to be seen. In fact, they are the leading opponents of free speech. I have been an advocate for free speech when that speech was liberal and when that speech was conservative. Well, I'll uh, tell you, so, I, I will tell you this, and let me just jump in real quickly yes, with, yes, a, with a view, and, and that being that I believe now the way that the left is attacking Free speech is far worse than how the right attacked Absolutely. free speech Absolutely. back in the 60s. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's 100% correct. Uh, and that's uh, because there's, uh, in today's day and age, the left viewpoint really is substantive. It's not procedural. What do I mean by that? I mean, they don't care about the rules of the game. They care that they win. Uh, and it, so perhaps it's a very rough analogy, but you hear the Dems, uh, many Dems saying all the time, well, Hillary won 3,000 more votes, or 3 million more votes, whatever their number is, who cares? Uh, and my response is, if she won them, got them, didn't get them, whatever, that's not a win. But you see, that's the thing. They equate uh, their success uh, with the only right and just outcome. And so they walk around using the words of, of righteousness and justice and, and, and said that Hillary won. She didn't win anything. She may have gotten more votes. That's fine. But she didn't win anything. You yeah. may have run more, more yards in the football game. You still didn't cross the finish line. Yeah, that's one of the uh, – somebody was saying that uh, on Twitter the other day about her getting more votes. And I said uh, you might take a Constitution uh, class to learn – that it's a republic that we live in, and that means that states are as important as an individual as well. And exactly. uh, because a state that's got fewer inhabitants is at the mercy of the state that has a 
huge amount right. of people that the uh, Electoral College is very, very important. That's right. And, and, and in a nutshell, uh, my response to the same folks is, how'd that work out for you? Yeah. Because Hillary's in upstate New York, to the best of my knowledge. How'd that work out for you? I didn't know there was a White House up there. Yep. Yeah, well, she. who knows? I don't know how many houses they have now. Yeah. All yeah. right, so you made mention that uh, sometimes, you know, we're the hammer that's hitting the nails that are sticking up on the deck, and right. uh, we're saying things that perhaps even our best friends wouldn't agree with. And in just a sure. moment, I'm going to say something that a lot of people aren't going to agree with me on. Here's Good. what I, I want to set up on this. Well, you know, yes, I, I speak it, the truth as I know it. Yes, and yes, number sir. one, what the Russians did uh, in our election was wrong. But mm-hmm. with but with that said, we do not have clean hands when it comes to meddling in other people's countries. Uh, the latest going back two years ago when Obama got involved in the Israeli election and uh, came up with uh, nearly $400,000 for an Israeli group that used the money to build a campaign to oust Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, It was sent to a group called One Voice uh, to support the group's efforts to back Israeli-Palestinian peace settlement negotiations, but One Voice used the money to build a voter database, train activists, and hire a political consulting firm with ties to President Obama's campaign. In one stunning finding, the subcommittee, and this is a congressional investigation, said one voice even told the State Department's top diplomat in Jerusalem of its plans in an email, but the official Consul General Michael Ratney claims to never have seen them because he regularly deleted emails with large attachments, which is a violation of open records laws for departments already reeling from former Secretary Hillary Clinton's handling of official government records. Bottom line is they covered it up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and I just want people to, you go back starting in the 50s uh, and the, the CIA, I, I'm going to name three countries. I'm going to name Chile back in 19, right. about 1965 we can go into the 70s and we can name Iran uh, and how we got involved with Iran. And we got uh, uh, messing around with Italy. Uh, a CI, former CIA officer by the name of Mark Wyatt said in a 1996 interview, the president was established in Italy with assistance to non-communist candidates from the late 40s to the 60s. Quote, we had bags of money that we delivered to selected politicians to help defray their expenses. We've been we've been into this stuff up to our nose. And you know what? If you don't want other people to do it, maybe you shouldn't do it. But that doesn't guarantee that the other person won't do it. And here's the thing, Dave, that you brought out earlier. Uh, while we aptly oppose what Russia did in our election, we also recognize that the face melting by the Democrats, uh, decrying uh, the end of the world as we know it, uh, their hysterical comments about the undermining of democracy entirely, their entirely false claim about, quote, 
hacking the election. What was hacked was someone's email, not the election. And that little trick of a phrase done by the Democrats is no accident. They say, oh, well, there was hacking and there was an election. Therefore, there was a hacking of election. No, hacking of election means the election's illegitimate. And since Donald Trump won that night, they, were, they have been trying to undermine the legitimacy of his presidency. And that's why it's one thing to say what the Russians did was wrong and to sanction them however we sanction them. And it's another thing to make it sound like it is the, the, the biggest thing since the invasion of, um, uh, by, uh, 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 by Japan during World War II. Uh, and so this is the problem that we have to separate out the hysteria from the wrongdoing. We recognize the wrongdoing, and we should act on the wrongdoing, but we should filter out the hysteria, because the hysteria is intentional, it's play-acting, uh, and it's done by the Democrats for the purposes of undermining our election. That's the key here. We can talk about both things at the same time, and we can recognize wrongdoing while also recognizing that the Democrats have been trying to exploit that wrongdoing to undermine the legitimacy of the president. All right. When we come back, I've already been I told you I'd hear from people about this coming up. and, And let me just read what they sent to me. It says, I'm gonna. I just gotta unlock my phone again. Surely, you are not equating that there is a moral equivalency to the actions of the U.S. and Putin. That there is a moral equivalency to the actions of the U.S. and Putin. My question is: If I drag this across from the the late. 40s, in fact, and this is after World War II, and that's when the Cold War began, and we bring it all the way up to present day today, uh, when I look at some of the times that we have done this, where we have literally assassinated foreign leaders, I think I got to tell you what we did, to my mind, is as bad as what Putin might have been trying to do. I think there's, again, I think it becomes complicated because there's a lot of different behaviors over different times. The standards of what we did in the 60s is not the same thing as the standard of of what takes place today. Uh, So uh, it's hard to compare those two. But you're you're apt in comparing them. You're entitled to compare them, but we need to recognize the the time difference uh, that's at play. Uh, And we need to recognize the scope and even though, as we've said today, and I've said in the past, I said, have you, that Putin's actions are terrible, uh, I think that some, uh, the notion that foreign governments are going to want to uh, support candidates that they believe, rightly or wrongly, are going to be more beneficial uh, to them, in and of itself doesn't strike me as, like I say earlier, the end of the world as we know it. Uh, and that's the challenge, is how to separate the wheat from the chaff, meaning the breaking into the DNC uh, um, database, computers, whatever you call it, I don't know technology well, uh, is far more, is a really serious wrongdoing. I mean, that's just outright theft. That's criminal behavior. Uh, The Russian government or any other government uh, finding people in the states that support the candidate that they support and therefore 
uh, helping out that that person, even though it's against the law and therefore is prohibited, is on the scale of moral outrage, less so, right? And we can draw those types of distinctions all the time, and we should, but not in today's environment. In today's environment, the left is so married to the idea that Trump is pure evil uh, and that he was in cahoots uh, with Putin, and that's that this whole uh, collusion uh, claim uh, that with no basis, in fact, as has been presented yet, by the way, uh, that they, uh, they, everything is, uh, to borrow a term from Spinal Tap the movie, uh, at 11 on a scale of 1 to 10. <laughs> and, uh, and that's why we wind up, as we have discussed again on this show many times, with the left's face melting. Uh, or, as you well know, a scene from Raiders of the Lost Ark, which I think was one of your recent movies. Just uh, re- yeah, movies. last yeah. Tuesday. Yeah, I asked on Twitter whether you did that to uh, in response to my commentary about face melting. <laughs> in any event, uh, that's what is going on. It's, it's, this, it's this inability to... Um, um, to, to distinguish levels of wrongdoing, and it's, it's a problem. It's really a problem. You saw that, I think it was Matt Damon made some comment regarding the Me Too movement, and he's a, a, a strong supporter. He's a leftist, and yep. he's a strong supporter of the Me Too movement, etc. He, but he, he drew some distinction. He said, well, such and such behavior, though wrong, is less wrong than some other behavior, and they jumped down his throat, right? And, of course, in the law... We draw those distinctions all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, m- manslaughter is a bad thing. Murder is considered worse. In the end, both in both circumstances, somebody's dead that shouldn't be. So it's a pretty bad deal if you're on the wrong end of that equation, uh, yet we nonetheless draw distinctions uh, and um, moral uh, opprobrium uh, regarding uh, the different uh, behaviors. Uh, that's what we do. That's what lawyers do. That's what moralists do. But the Democrats want to blur all those lines, and that, like I said, to go back, uh, they they keep using the phrase that the Russians hacked the election, and that's just not an accurate phrase, and it's designed to mislead, and that's disingenuous, and that's why, uh, the, the, in the end, their behavior won't be successful for them. Well, before we uh, take, get this break, I want to right. just mention one thing, then I'll, I'll move to the break. It's sure. This whole thing about election meddling is, is a reminder that what Russia is doing right now in 2016, though they're using new technologies, is this old That's school right. espionage that has been going on forever. And, right. it, it, and uh, to quote uh, from this article, it illuminates the larger currents of history that drove American electoral interventions during the Cold War and motivate right. Russia's actions today. So we'll come back in a moment. I will talk again uh, for a few moments about how Obama got involved in uh, the Israeli election two years ago. That's all coming up with Robert uh, Steinbach and myself. Plus, Facebook took a brand-new Christian contemporary song, What Would Heaven Look Like?, and said that it had political content, which it didn't. And we'll talk about anti-Christian censorship and bigotry on Facebook when we return on the Dave Ellswick Show. Hear the people crying. 
Longing for peace, endless strife, war in our streets. Hearts are so divided, eyes that can't see. Is there hope for humanity? Yes, there's a place where sorrow and heartache won't exist. And creed will praise Him Every tongue from every nation As one will all worship His name Robert, that's the song that set off uh, Facebook. What would heaven look like? It's uh, from a group called Zion's Joy. Uh, it's a purely uh, spiritual uh, Christian praise song. It was posted on Facebook. Uh, they had uh, boosted uh, the, the ad for uh, the song with a $100 purchase, only to see the song censored for, quote, political content now with that said let me say that this is a privately owned business and they have every right in the world to do whatever they feel they have every right in the world to censor however i think that facebook is going to get themselves in deep water Uh, they've already taken a hit although they recovered from uh, you know what they have done uh, in other parts of, of the time about selling, uh, you know, information about the people who are using their uh, particular uh, social media site. They've recovered for that. But the pattern of Facebook errors has gotten to be kind of how we should say alarming. And they use political content to go after all this stuff. The, the First Amendment guarantees what it gives us uh, free speech it gives us freedom of religion and freedom of the press and that means if that's the case and it's predicated to protect among other things political speech robert is facebook you know their their new ad campaign is showing pictures of uh you know guys showing their baby daughters or babies their sons people playing with dogs, this and all that, and uh, it's supposed to be bringing us together, not driving us apart. Sounds like to me perhaps Facebook is taking this a little too far. What's your, what's your thought on that? Okay. What's technical problem? Technical problem. I'm, I'm I got you. Uh, um, uh, yeah. Uh, this is the problem, Dave, is that uh, – so many of these kind of Silicon Valley companies are run by folks on the left, and they don't realize that when they censor conservative statements and religious statements, they're making a political statement. Because they go, oh, we're, we're neutral. You know, we just, we're a service provider. We're neutral. We're neutral unless we are censoring conservatives. Well, 
that's not neutral. That's called liberal. Yeah. That's called leftist. Uh, and that's the problem, is that they are so indoctrinated. It's the same environment in much of higher education across this country. And, and that's why when they say, well, you can't say that, and, and people uh, on the right go in, on, on a college campus and say something conservative, uh, we've discussed on this show, Dave, as you recall, the professor from University of Pennsylvania, my alma mater, in fact, but not for law school. She's at the law school, Amy Wax. And she made the uncontroversial statement about how uh, sort of getting married, then having kids, uh, and various other kind of traditional activities and values produces a better outcome uh, on average. Uh, and she was lambasted. She said, well, people said, well, those are the values of the 50s, as she said, and there was racism in the 50s. Yes, and, and that's, but one doesn't make the other, right? Hitler was a vegetarian. That doesn't mean that vegetarians are Nazis. So it's, it, she made a, a, an uncontroversial statement, and she's been skewered for it. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is what uh, goes on across uh, the academy, uh, across higher education, and, and even high school education, is that uh, they, they are indoctrinated so much in the left that they believe that their views are the right views, they are the truth. And then if you say something to the contrary, if your show is uh, played inside a school, they've come out with ists, right? They go through their PC checklist. First, you'd be some sort of ist, a racist, a misogynist, a this, this, a that ist. Uh, and then they'd say how you are a beneficiary of some sort of privilege, uh, like me, who's first-generation American, whose father uh, fled the Nazis, yeah, re you know, really uh, grown up in a, in a lot of privilege, I say, with tongue firmly implanted in my cheek. Um, and so uh, uh, they just have a checklist of politically correct um, aphorisms and, and attacks, frankly, that they spew out uh, at us. Um, and they use terms that would never be accepted if it was done in reverse, right? Oh, uh, well, that's just some old white guy talking. Could you imagine picking any other group and, and, and deciding based on the identity of the speaker uh, in terms of his race and his age that you should be able to discount him? No. You know why? Because that is racism. That actually is racism. Uh, they use terms like mansplaining and manspreading. Could you imagine using, putting in any other group instead of man in those terms? Put in woman or, or some other racial group uh, and, and see if you can get away with that. You couldn't. you know why? You shouldn't because that's uh, um, racism or misogyny. Uh, but when it comes to a man, you can do it. Perfectly acceptable amongst the left, not acceptable amongst me. We don't decide whether or not someone is good based on his race, based on his gender, based on any other of those types of criteria. Uh, and so uh, that, what's good for the goose is good for the gander, and we're not going to play by the one-sided uh, form of discrimination that the left seems to think they can get away with. And, of course... One of the reasons, as I've said before in your show, Dave, uh, that the president won the election because Hillary went around and said, oh, you know what? A half of Americans are evil and bad people, and here's a bunch of names I'm going to call them, including, of course, deplorable. And, hey, can I have your vote? And you know what they said? Uh, no. No, thank you. 
I'll take something else on the menu. Uh, and so uh, this is uh, this is just non-acceptable behavior, uh, but yet it can, can, continues to go on by the left. Yeah, well, it's it's the way it has been working for quite some time. I mean, That's right. I, I've I've sat here on the show and we've talked, uh, and I've talked with you. I've talked with others, and it amazes me that. A typical high school kid doesn't have a clue about what the First Amendment deals with, doesn't know about freedom of religion, doesn't know about freedom of the press, doesn't know about freedom of speech, uh, freedom of uh, getting together and and, uh, marching and things of that nature, doesn't have a clue. I, I, I blame the school system for that. And then I, and on top of that, I blame we as parents for that that we don't go down and pound our 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 uh, to use Maxine's and Waters uh, thing show up at school board meeting and tell them of our displeasure mm-hmm, for the, mm-hmm. about doing uh, of not teaching our children that or if you are about how you're skewing the teaching of that. Why would a young person think that socialism is better than capitalism unless somebody told them that? Well, the problem is, as you allude to, Dave, is that the leftists are teaching people not how to think, but what to think. And so they come out and they say, oh, well, we have free speech, uh, but unless it's speech that we don't like. And then we label it something like hate speech, which I don't like. Don't get me wrong, but they go on to say hate speech is not speech. Well, then why'd you put the word speech in it? Yeah. Use any other word in the infinite number of words that exist in the lexicon. But they use the word hate speech because they recognize, in fact, that it's speech. And so then you have a student who says, wait, I was told that that you have free speech, but then some speech isn't speech, even though we call it speech, I'm confused. I'll just repeat back to them what they told me because there's no logic. I'm not being taught how to think. I'm simply being taught what to think. I'm simply being taught to parrot back the problem that I'm being fed. And that's leftist education in a nutshell. By the way, let me touch on this. Then we'll take a final break and come back and finish this up. We're all probably aware of this story that's been going on about about Papa John's founder, John Schneider, I guess is how he pronounces his name. And he's now doubled, maybe even quadrupled down on his claims that former AOR laundry service bears a major share of the responsibility for a May call in which he uttered the N-word and made comments about lynching, according to a report in Forbes, that he later confirmed in a Friday interview with a local radio host. He said that laundry service staffers had pressured him to engage in the conversation that led to him using that word while referencing Colonel Sanders. I believe you, you... Maybe I was talking to my my geek power panel on Friday about this. And in the second interview with an ABC affiliate, he went so far now as to claim that the agency extorted his company and demanded $6 million, quote, to make the story go away. Uh, One may note that uh, the Papa John's founder did not name laundry service in 
this interview, but he did make clear in the previous interview that this was the company he was referencing. Forbes story went live the morning after Adweek broke the news about laundry service laying off at least 40 to 60 employees and parting with CEO Jason Stein. It would appear based on subsequent statements about his new venture that Stein had been planning to leave laundry service for some time. So bottom, he, uh, that uh, Papa Joe's founder had wanted to stay with the CEO and not with laundry service. And then all of this other stuff started coming out and coming out in, in uh, the wrong context and all the rest. It's going to, it's going to leave a lot of people with egg on their face. If they find out this was kind of an extortion uh, thing being done by a company. Well, I didn't follow the details of the story, unfortunately. Is there an assertion that he said the word, but he was using it in a descriptive fashion of the word he, itself? He says he was going through a training exercise mm-hmm. with the company about what to do, about you know, saying about saying things. And uh, he was explaining, look, I know what to say and what not to say, I remember back in the day when, uh, you know, people didn't know that uh, the founder of Kentucky Fried Chicken was a former Klan member, and he used to use the N-word, uh, use the use the, the real word, is it, the N-word, and talking, the word out loud. Yeah, t- right. t- telling that, and uh, about uh, lynching and all of that. He was using it in the context of, well, we know he that was he was saying the it. word. Yes, he was describing the word. He was not using it as a pejorative. No, well, he... I, 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 I've seen this happen before. I've seen uh, 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 at least one academic describe the word. He was reviewing, um, to, uh, talking about, I believe it was to kill a mockingbird uh, in a uh, law and film class, criminal law and film class, and he, a big liberal, uh, and, and would not have in my opinion, a racist bone in his body, um, uh, was describing one of the bad characters, one of the racists in the movie, and, and, he, and he said, that character would say something like, and he repeated uh, that phrase, uh, before that character would shoot uh, um, a, a black man, let's say. It, that was somehow the description that this academic was using. In other words, he was saying, this is a bad word, and here's a racist, who would use this word in this context, and then they went on to describe something about the scene. Um, and so then he was attacked for repeating the word that the character did or would say. I don't remember exactly what the facts were, but in other words, describing a ra- describing, let me emphasize, describing a racist use of that word. Now, I generally, I, not generally, I always say the term, the N-word. I don't actually say the word out, but that's because... I don't want to get into the hot water that these people have gotten into. But from a moral standpoint, if you're repeating that word uh, uh, for the sake of description or or context or reading from Huck Finn, that doesn't mean you're using that word. That's correct. Like I said, I've got to tell everybody, I'm going to tell you something you know and everybody in your audience, you know what? Don't get into that battle. Do not get into that battle. You're going to lose. You're going to lose it. 
You're going to lose it. I'm not, and that's not a that's not a claim of morality. That's a claim of I'm telling you that's that's not a river you want to have to paddle up. So don't do it. But that's but that's how sort of far we've gone that you can't even say the word. Uh, listen, there are plenty, as you know, uh, not specifically, of course, but and you'll see in a minute what I mean by that, but there are plenty of derogatory terms used uh, to uh, Jews, and as you know, I'm a Jew, um, and, and uh, in, in a discussion, uh, I might uh, say those words and say, well, you know, in the history of uh, anti-Semitism, here are some of the terms that have been used against uh, Jews. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean I'm an anti-Semite, and obviously I have a special position as a Jew to to claim not being an anti-Semite or an enhanced position, perhaps, um, to do so. But repeating that word doesn't make me an anti-Semite, and I have had discussions about that. I've had, I remember, this is years and years ago, someone said, oh, I heard this term, such and such. I repeated the term back. I said, yes, in fact, that term is a, de- a derogatory term towards Jews, and the person was genu- genuinely asking me because she said, I think it relates to Jews. I'm not even sure. I heard somebody say it. What's it mean? And then we had a conversation about it. I didn't think she was being a racist when she asked me that question. And she certainly didn't think I was being an anti-Semite when I repeated back the word to her to to describe the etymology of the word. Uh, And so that's why we've gone so far over the cliff on these things that we can't even have a rational conversation where a word is being said. I agree. we got to take a final break. Let's get that in, and then we'll be back and wrap this all up with my uh, time and it's gone fast today robert hasn't it indeed all right we'll be back and finish it up everything you uh, know about claiming your social security benefits can be absolutely turned upside down because the federal government changes rules all the time Uh, new rules for claiming your benefits have gone into effect for this year don't know what they'll be next year that's why you need a copy of the updated 2018 guide to social security from david lucas of the david lucas show here on 101.1, the answer, because if you take him wrongly, if you claim those benefits wrong, they can cost you tens of thousands of dollars in the lifetime of however long you're taking your Social Security. So get the easy-to-read uh, guide packed full of up-to-date information for 2018 that could help you avoid losing tens of thousands of dollars in lifetime benefits that are rightfully yours. To get your free 2018 guide to Social Security, call 501-653-6690. That's 501-653-6690. All right, last final minutes with us. And, Robert, we're out of time. I appreciate you being with me today. Here in the near future, you'll be back, and we'll get you into the studio. It's going to be soon. Look forward to it. I look forward to All right, we'll talk to you later. Appreciate you. See you. Uh, next week, unless something comes up and we need some fast legal information to clarify something for us. So Dave Ellswick Show will be back with you too tomorrow. Power panel's on. Bible guys are on. Got a question for the Bible guys? Bible guys at SalemLR.com. Got a couple of questions already in the folder ready to give to our guests. Talk to you tomorrow, 2 o'clock. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.